Hosting for this podcast is made possible through mtgcast.com, which is supported by a generous contribution from quietspeculation.com, Magic's premier trading and financial news site. Our M14 report card and our Theros review on episode 29 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 29 of So Many Insane Plays, in which Steve and I review Theros, new cards and mechanics, as well as our M14 report card. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. announcements this week, I want to draw our vintage and legacy players, listeners, to a Twitter conversation that was started by Eric Froelich this week on the 16th. He says, I know it's impossible, 0%, etc., but legacy is so sweet and modern is so unplayably bad. Would it be awesome if there could be legacy PTQ slash PT? Now, this kicked off a, a great discussion about the viability of legacy as a PTQ format and the reserved list and some other related topics that many of you already know. But there's one response in particular that I want to draw everyone's attention to, and it's relevant to our show here. Worth Wolpert, who runs Magic Online for Wizards, said, maybe online someday, question mark. Now, Steve, you and I have gone back and forth on a number of different shows and various topics about how great it's going to be when the vintage cards, the Power Nine especially, are all available on Magic Online. And here's Worth hinting pretty sidelong, almost confirming maybe, that there would be legacy PTQs online. Is it that much of a stretch that we could have vintage PTQs online? Not at all. The chief constraint on both legacy and vintage PTQs and Pro Tours or Grand Prix is the same constraint. It's the reserve list. It's both accessibility and popularity, which are related in a a vicious circle. Um, And if, if legacy can be a PTQ format on Magic Online, there's no reason vintage couldn't also be. All the Wizards has to do is simply support it by making it so. Exactly. And they, in in contrast to the IRL kind of tournament organization and running of PTQs and other large events, the incremental cost of running a PTQ online is significantly less. So they're not, they're putting much less at risk, too, to allow PTQs for less common formats than what they do today. That's exactly right. And people are going to play in them because they want to qualify for the Pro Tour. <laughs> That's right. And people, I think people would be completely energized and excited to play in a vintage PTQ. I know I bet tons of people would. Tons of pros would come out of the woodwork, not that they don't already, but people who would be attracted to the novelty of the thing, people who've never done it before, played at least in, in, a, in a competitive vintage event. And I just think it would be great. How much of a coup would that be for the format? Well, that, that would be fantastic. Um, you know, but it, it all comes down to the same issue, which is will they create enough of these legacy and vintage play, you know, staples online so that it's not prohibitively expensive to get into the format? I mean, wizards can set up, organize and execute vintage or legacy PTQs regardless of actually own those staples. Um, you know, uh, 
it's not as if it's a traditional system where there is a tournament organizer that is uh, running a regional PTQ and really needs, you know, um, a, a large player base to justify it. These are all run by Wizards Online. There's no, you know, Mike Guptill involved. It's just Wizards. So they can, you know, they, they, I, I suspect that they would like to have, you know, the greatest number of players as possible, but that's certainly not necessary. They can invest. The costs are much less to run a PTQ online, I assume, since you don't need space and you don't need, you know, judges and et cetera, et cetera. So um, if Will- Wizards is willing to, you know, give this a try, I think it would be worth it. You know, the, investing, for example, in legacy PTQs, say for two over a two-year period, would be a lot more costly to regional and local tournament organizers than online PTQs, wouldn't you say? I agree completely. So if anyone from R&D or organized play is listening to us here, I think that this notion of having a vintage PTQ online is something of a proxy for our overall desires for the format as a whole. It would really be a watershed moment for the acceptance and popularity of the format. Well, this goes back to a discussion we had in our uh, Vintage Online podcast. You know, um, I'm working on the history of Vintage 2002, and I'm almost done with it. It should be out this month. But one of the things that had happened in 2002 was that after years of dormancy, the Type 1 format sort of saw a resurgence, an increasing popularity. And what happened was it came to a head in, in June and July of 2002 when Mark Rosewater had a mailbag column in which he answered a question from a reader saying, why don't you make more cards for type one and why don't you support type one more? And his basic answer was, well, cards that we make do make their way to type one, but it's not our focus because we have limited resources. We put our our resources not in type one or type 1.5, but in the formats that have the largest numbers of players. And it it created such a firestorm, not his answer, but actually there was a, a, a remark in his answer where he said, as an example of a a deck and cards that make their way into type one is the quote tremendous impact or significant impact that grow has had in type one and Oscar Tan and a number of other people took great issue with that comment. It sort of galvanized and inflamed the type one community who felt that that comment was, was basically ignorant of the format and reflected a lack of understanding of the format. And so it prompted Mark Rosewater to write a really remarkable column exclusively that exclusively dedicated to type one. And as far as I know, he had never done anything like that before. And I don't think he had ever done anything like that since. And in that article, Mark, you know, Mark Rosewater discussed why Type 1 could not be a PTQ, uh, Pro Tour, or Grand Prix format, and the, the factors that, that influenced that, the matrix of factors that influenced that decision. And the two big things he pointed to were both popularity and access, accessibility. And he noted, though, so he, he goes through and has these tables that show the, the uh, percentage of Type 1 tournaments versus uh, other tournaments and the percentage of Type 1 singles sales versus other single sales. Um, and basically what he, he says is that, look, Type 1 is just not nearly as popular as these other formats. We can't justify um, making it a PTQ, especially since it's so expensive. He, he, he notes, I think, somewhat ironically from this perspective, that a Type 1 deck could cost as much as $950 a deck um, in $2,002. <laughs> but, but what's really remarkable is that he barely acknowledges the role that um, that Wizards policy played in marginal the, the so-called vintage formats at the time, which were both Legacy and ty- at 1.5 and Type 1. Although he does, in a parenthetical, note that a lack of support does create a vicious circle. Um, and someone had basically said, well, why don't you just, you know, invest two years, 
in in creating PTQs and see how it goes after two evaluate after two two years in, in type one PTQs. Um, but but you know even though you know that that article is sort of negative for reinforcing the policy of the reserve list and sort of failing to acknowledge the extent to which Wizards policy has really pl- played into the decline of, of those formats. It did. There were some positive things that came out of it, and one positive thing that came out of it was. He had a poll at the end in which he asked if players would like an annual Type 1 championship to return, and that actually happened the next year. Um, and also, he said that, that, that they, Type 1 in, in Type 1.5 would get more attention on, on the uh, MagicTheGathering.com website and that they would be more likely to design cards for Type 1, and that appears to have happened with Mirrodin. So, I mean, there were some positive things that came out of it, but this is a debate. That, the reason I say all this is because this is a debate that's been going on for well over a decade, and the factors that, that play into it are, are have not changed in that time. They're all the same. And, and the, the point, though, is that Vintage and Legacy Online, if properly administered, has the potential to reverse and rewind or overcome that historical damage. Excellent background there, Steve. I, I'm impressed. Is that article available online for our listeners? Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, send it to you so we can put it in the show notes. Awesome. Well, that's really interesting to put that in context with this concept that is hinted at by the, the notion of legacy PTQs online, at least, is that we might actually be able to come almost full circle, or at least functionally so, to get back to what Morrow was getting at and talk about comparing vintage PTQs in a meritocracy to other formats, that would be fantastic. I wonder if we could get him or or one of the other individuals like Worth Wolpert to talk about the vintage PTQ format after it happened and what that means for the game and for them. Right. I think, though, you know, we shared the same reservations, though. I mean, as great as we think that would be, the reality is that, that Vintage, even with Power 9, is not that accessible on Magic Online. And it's not very clear that the format, that the uh, the platform is that accessible either. You know, it's it's not easy to administer, in my experience at least. And more importantly, the cards are just too expensive. To buy into a Vintage deck, what, what is it that the average deck costs, with Force of Will costing, you know, $100? Right. Uh, that's definitely a valid concern. I don't think we need to rehash that topic, except... I would simply point out that the issues are easier to address in the, the online yes. world. Yes. And the issues that, that Mark Rosewater brought up in that article, many of them still exist, and some of them have even gotten worse. So yeah. the concerns he raised are still valid concerns today. Anyway, I thought that was very interesting, and our community should take note to watch out for that kind of thing, because a legacy PTQ online could be the next step down the road towards popularity of vintage online. And we're still in 2013, the year it was suggested that we would get the Power 9 online. So uh, who knows? It could be as soon as the end of this year that it happens. But I think that's a little optimistic. And I don't think that we should wait around, though, and, and you know let Wizards just make their own timetable. I think we should continue to pressure them as a community. I encourage people to write in and let Wizards know that you want... Power 9 to come to Magic Online. I think we should all take that step. If there's one thing that we know from his history, it's that Wizards responds to, to their customers. Good point and good idea. I'm going to include a link to Eric and Worth's Twitter conversation in our show notes. So anyone who's listening to this can go find that and reply to them on Twitter or however else you'd prefer to, to reply. So speaking of playing vintage, we have some upcoming tournaments. And this is going to be possibly the first time in the show that we have pitched a monthly quasi-weekly event twice in a row because we're recording relatively soon after our last show so upcoming on september 28 in columbus ohio the team Sirius open on october 5 in kalamazoo michigan at odyssey games which i'll be at 
And, and these are both these are all proxy tournaments, right? That's correct. And they're all on the Mana Drain, and we'll have links in the show notes. And then on October 27 at Eudaimonia in Berkeley. So the vintage scenes near you and I are pr- doing pretty well, Steve. What do you feel? Oh, we're doing great. We just had a Vacaville tournament this past weekend with uh, over 20 players. And um, you, with Eudaimonia and Vacaville, we are having regular vintage events. It, it seems like, though, that these will be the last big tournaments before the vintage champs. That's right. I expect that the October 5 tournament is the last one I'll play in before vintage champs. And the 1027 tournament at Eudaimonia is just the week before. That's incredible. Yeah, I expect I expect the results from that tournament to be incredibly revealing. Um, and I go ahead. No, I agree completely. It's going to be very interesting to watch things evolve this month and next. Steve, what upcoming articles have you got? Well, I published a, a couple of free articles that are I'd like people to take a look at at Eternal Central. I published a really cool Doomsday puzzle. I think it's called, called the Death Rite. There are two Death Rite shamans in play, and you're playing Legacy Doomsday. How do you how do you win the game? And it's a bit tricky. Um, and then I've also got a uh, a Dream Halls puzzle scenario that uh, is about to be launched. And I published a, a fairly long History of Dual Lands article that you actually had an interesting question about, Kevin. I think you read that article. What did you think? I thought that article was fantastic. It was very illuminating. I was fascinated to read near the beginning where you talked about Ice Age. Now, Ice Age was clearly just the second set of Dual Lands that they really designed and printed for Magic. But you said something in there that I didn't know, which was that the... Well, can you explain the original Ice Age duels had a different purpose when they were being developed or designed? Right. So several of the set Magic expansion sets were actually developed before Magic was even printed and was even released. So Magic Ice Age and Magic Menagerie were actually designed, which became Mirage, were actually designed in large part before Magic the Gathering, that is Alpha, had even been printed and released. Um, and, and the idea behind Magic the Ga- Magic Ice Age, the Gathering Ice Age, and Magic Menagerie was that those sets would replace Magic the Gathering. So, um, you know, the, Magic the Gathering was like Magic 1.0, and then Magic Ice Age would be Magic 2.0, and it would re- replace the entire card pool, not build on the pre-existing card pool. And they'd have different card backs, potentially, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what happened was Magic was so overwhelmingly popular, and the second set, Magic Ice Age, wasn't completed and so they rushed arabian nights to print and so because magic ice age was going to replace magic the gathering key staples for magic the gathering were going to be reprinted in magic ice age and this they discovered fairly early so that commons like you know dark ritual giant growth lightning bolt things like that would be i guess lightning bolt is not actually reprinted in in ice age but the point is that cards like that key functional staples that there was no reason to sort of innovate or tweak would um would just be remain in the in the in that new set um, but when, you know, when they printed, you know, five expansions before Ice Age, they realized they, that original vision of sort of replacing the entire original carpool was not really feasible. And in fact, when they tried to print Arabian Nights with new backs, card backs, there was sort of outrage in the, in the community, in the magic community. And so, um, I think the original idea, I, I don't remember where the source is for this. It may have been a duelist. It may have been a book. But my recollection is that the original plan for Ice Age, so there are two dual lands in Ice Age. There are the so-called depletion lands and the pain lands. And the depletion land art was originally intended to be new dual lands. Um, as you know, um, lands were in alpha and beta and limited and revised um, as rares. And the plan was that they would be um, reprinted with different art in Ice Age. Um, you, you probably know some of the quirks of Alpha, Beta, Unlimited. So in Alpha, five cards were accidentally omitted from the print run, one of those being Volcanic Island. Mm-hmm. But it was finally printed in Beta, Unlimited, and Revised. But the, there, there was a quirk in which different plateau art 
was printed in in um, alpha and beta because they and lost the, the art. Yeah, because they lost the art. Um, and I believe that the art that was ultimately used um, in the second version of the art was the one that was intended for Ice Age. Fascinating. So I think I think that's what you were referring to. That that is just an incredible story. I knew that they had lost the art, Drew Tucker's alpha beta unlimited art, and replaced it with Cornelius Broody so fast that they actually miscredited Cornelius's art as Drew's. But yeah. I I never knew about the the broader picture of the duels being reprinted and just re-arted for in, uh, Ice Age. I thought that was fascinating. Imagine how different <laughs> magic would be if some of those precedents had been set. I mean, if there were fetchable duels in Ice Age, for example, so oh, many yeah. conversations that we've had in the last 10 years would have gone differently. The reserve list would not be, would not be an <laughs> issue as much. Yeah. And Legacy would be a completely different animal today, I think. If I recall correctly, there's probably around 300 and some thousand dual ends from Revi- you know, total printed. Mm-hmm. Alpha Beta Unlimited Revised, you would have a, a much larger card pool, but there would still be reserve list issues um, you know, as Legacy continues to get popular. I mean, just look at cards like Force of Will, which were in alliances and how how highly demanded they are. Um, you know, one thing, though, I just wanted to clarify from the article is that um, there were a number of errors in Alpha, not just not I think a COP, one of the COPs was not printed. Yep. You know, uh, in addition to Volcanic Island not being printed, there were probably five cards I think were not printed. There are also cards, like you said, that were miscredited. There were cards that didn't like Cyclopean Tomb didn't have its casting cause. And people get confused. Alpha and Beta are the same set and actually part of the same print run. So Magic the Gathering was intended to have 10 million card print run. Alpha represents the first 2.6 million of those cards. And they stopped the print run so they could correct those errors. So it becomes two functional print runs, even though they were intended to be one cohesive uh, print run. Mm-hmm. Well, not to shut the door on that fantastic discussion, but what other articles do you have um, so the history of vintage 2002, which I just talked a little bit about, is is forthcoming. It's really fascinating. And then um, I'm planning to write a Theros set review. Uh, I've outlined it, but I haven't actually. So depending on how this goes, we'll see if I actually do that. But if I do, be sure to check eternalcentral.com. Look for that. <laughs> I hope that our podcast today doesn't sour you on Theros. <laughs> <laughs> It wouldn't be a set review without our previous set's report card, so here's our M14 report card. All our predictions compared to their actual performance or top 8 appearances. First, Chandra Pyromancer. Steve, you predicted 0. I predicted 1 because I had a holdout for people like our friend Theo, but the actual was 0, so that goes down as a win for you. Apparently no one succeeded in trying Chandra Pyromaster in Vintage, at least well enough to make a top 8 although I'm not terribly surprised. Next is Glimpse the Future. No need to belabor this one, zero, zero, zero across the board. After that, though, is Young Pyromancer. And this one, this is the biggie. This one deserves some discussion because, Steve, you predicted 13. I predicted 10. And the actual, we'll talk about in greater length, but the actual is 10. If you take some liberties and include the most recent tournament, Steve, that you played in and top aided in that's not yet up on Morphling.d as of this very moment. Well, if you count 
And we, we were both, in a sense, right, because if you count the tournaments that um, that were published this weekend but have not been put yet put on Morphling.d, I think it's exactly 13. There's a Type 1 tournament. Um, it's called Next Level Vintage September Edition in Australia. It was posted on September September 7th, and there was a, a Young Americans deck in that Top 8 with Pyromancer. And then there was the uh, Top Deck Games 2013 Eternal Series, where David Atta played my Grow deck in the Top the top 8. And then there was a there was a tournament at Atomic Empire Games, Eternal Weekend 3, September 6th to 8th, and there was a Pyromancer deck in that Top 8. So if we add those in, there's a Grow deck. If we add those in, that equals exactly 13 Pyromancers in Top 8s. Our predictions were spot on for this card. I was a little bit hesitant to see how many people would take up the card, which is why I'm on the lower end of the spectrum. And it was pretty widely adopted by a number of people all across the country and the world indeed. And I think Pyromancer is pretty clearly here to stay. But Steve, in our analysis of these top eights and our reviewing them, one of the things that became clear was that our metric of measuring top eight appearances doesn't really tell the whole story for a card like this. Young Pyromancer is clearly having an impact beyond its own performance per se. I think that's exactly that's exactly right. Unfortunately, we also lost the day one of Gen Con results, in which I believe there were at least one, if not two or three, Pyromancers in the top eight Pyromancer decks. But what became very clear is that the tournament that weekend in New York and then the second day, the, the format had essentially heavily adjusted. But if you look at some of these recent tournament results, we see that there are people who are main decking a lot of answers to Pyromancer. So this one deck, the guy has Lava Dart main deck. Another guy is playing, I think we were seeing Worm Coil Engine becoming much more popular as an answer to Pyromancer. And we're seeing a lot more cards like, um, help me out, what's that card, that's, that sweeper card, this like the new powder keg, Kevin? Ratchet Bomb. Yeah, Ratchet Bomb and Steel Elkite are coming back into popularity. And, and there are other cards that you've observed, Kevin. Why don't you talk about those? There's been a return of Pyroclasm, which is a longtime anti-creature card. Tabernacles are showing up uh, more often. At Gen Con, uh, Jordi Amatpui, who is the one the Saturday event, had Caltrops in his sideboard. And also at Gen Con, Steve Stearman's Humans deck had Orzov Pontiff as a one of in a reaction to the Young Pyromancer. And what does that do? Orzov Pontiff is the the three casting cost Orzov guy that when he comes into play, you choose to give your guys plus one plus one or their guys minus min, minus one minus one. Wow. Yeah. And and Mike Salimasi was playing Is It Staticaster in his sideboard at Gen Con of his rug deck. So what does that do? <laughs> is It Staticaster is the Is It three mana flash creature that's zero three and taps to deal and has haste. Flash and haste. It taps to deal one damage to the target creature and all creatures that share the same name. So it kills all the elemental tokens and then untap and kills the pyromancer. So all of these things point to great waves that Young Pyromancer has made in the format. Even even though it has made more than a dozen top eight appearances, it's also affecting having ripple effects in all the other decks with main deck and sideboard choices designed specifically to address the Pyromancer. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So the card's impact is measured by the way in which other decks are adjusting is much larger and much greater than just 13 top top eight appearances would suggest. Yeah, exactly. And I don't see any end in sight, really. The performances in the last few weeks, especially yours and the ones the others you observed last weekend, Steve, those have all come in the face of all these adjustments. So it's not as though the environment just responded and pushed Young Pyromancer out. The environment has responded, but the Young Pyromancer decks are also evolving. 
the card is right. appearing in a number of different forms and with some different variants and strategies. So I really do think it's it's here to stay. I played in the uh, I played in the Vacaville tournament this week weekend and made top eight. And one of my opponents was running Dark Blast as technology for both Pyromancer and Dark and Dark Confidant. I think primarily as an answer to, to Pyromancer, and it's very effective. And for those of you who are interested in playing young Pyromancer decks in the very near future and leading up to Vintage Champs, make sure you test against these various new strategies because if you're not prepared, they can really undo your plans. I mean, I did have to play against Is It Staticaster at, Vint- at um, Saturday Vintage Event in Gen Con, and it was definitely a tactic that I was not practiced against, and I almost lost because of it. And there was a point in, in one of the games when I thought nothing in the <laughs> nothing that I know of in the current format gets my opponent out of this situation. I have a dominant board position, but my hand was filled with counter spells that could not counter a three casting cost creature on my end step. <laughs> and that was almost the end of me. So you got to watch out for these things because these adaptations show up for a reason. That's a very good point. Anyway, Young Pyromancer is here to stay, and our prediction w- with within reason of some variants of unposted events was spot on. And unfortunately, that is the last good news from M14, really. Moving on, Strionic Resonator with zeros across the board, no surprise there. The only real interesting point left is regarding imposing Sovereign. Steve, you and I both hedged and said one appearance thinking that some deck like Multicolor Humans or Green-White Aggro would make use of the Sovereign, but nobody did. So we both missed out on that one. There were no appearances. Mind Sparker is zeros across the board. No surprise there. Banisher Priest was similar to Imposing Sovereign. You said two. I said one. The actual was zero. I did take a look and look and compare Banisher Priest to Fiend Hunter, since that was one of the comparisons we drew during our analysis. And Fiend Hunter does show up occasionally but has not much recently so i was expecting and interested to see if there were examples of people making the choice of one over the other so far it's been all fiend hunter but we'll see and rounding out our m14 cards dark prophecy and haunted plate mail were both zeros across the board so our statistics this time steve look pretty darn good for us but that's mostly because young pyromancer was the only card that really saw any action and we both predicted it very well. So our median variance this time is zero for both of us, and our average variance is less than one for both of us. So it was pretty darn close. Our predictions for M14 were a little bit sedate, but we got them right. Sounds good. I mean, it, you know, all you need is one really great card for these sets anyways. So we got a great card. And um, I think I've been a little surprised to see Young Pyromancer has, hasn't made quite the splash in Legacy that I expected, although it did win the Star City Games Cincinnati tournament. I think that there's still a really good Young Pyromancer deck out there in Legacy, yet to be really, uh, really broken and I'm really looking forward to playing it myself when I get a chance. Excellent. And I agree. Hasn't Hasn't really matured there yet. I think it's interesting. This may be an example where a card matures faster in Vintage than Legacy. It seems pretty clear that, at least in terms of community excitement, the Vintage community really leapt on Young Pyromancer right out of the gate. And while people did talk about it in Legacy, there was not nearly as much fervor around it. I think that's right. I mean, obviously, I wrote my Grow article. Brian DeMars was all over it. Rich Shea was excited about it. So when you have a lot of the most prominent voices really strongly endorsing it, there really wasn't as much of that, I think, in Legacy. And people were sort of settled into their existing archetypes more so than in Vintage. Well, we'll see how Theros pans out in terms of community excitement. 
I should just mention the Vacaville tournament I played in yesterday. Half the top eight had young pyromancer. So that's incredible. <laughs> that really is incredible. We'll see if that becomes any kind of a standard here for the next month or so. So what does Theros have in store for us? Well, let's see. We like to start our set reviews by talking about the new broad mechanics and their keywords that are added to each set. And we have five new keywords. Sorry, we have five keywords, four of them being new in Theros. Let's start with the old, Steve, and Scry. Now, Scry is pretty clearly relevant to Vintage in the form of Preordain. Why don't you remind our listeners exactly what Scry does? Well, Scry is basically just Scry with a number. And to Scry, you look at the top X cards of your library, put any number of them on the bottom of your library, and the rest on top in any order. So it's a way to push cards, rearrange cards on the top, or push them all to the bottom if you need to. And it's been it's been quite a while since we've been playing with Scry in Vintage and all other formats. Preordain is a four of in numerous decks in Vintage, so we're well we're well versed in it there, and it's it's not going away. In fact, it's one of the keys to making Young Pyromancer so good. Yeah, you know, I mean, Scry is undoubtedly a, a vintage playable mechanic, keyword mechanic. As you pointed out, preordain. And there are all sorts of precursors to Scry. There are cards that allow you to rearrange the top of your library, like Portent, Natural Selection, Elemental Augury, Brainstorm, Ponder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, Sylvan Library. <laughs> and, and and so Scry is something that is inherently useful in, in vintage. And the core element of Scry is a virtual card advantage. Um, I think there's even a card called a card that has seen play in fish decks called Sage of Epitier, which does something similar. Um, and, and that's actually something in some ways more similar to Scry itself than a lot of the cards I just mentioned. Like Natural Selection doesn't actually draw you anything. It just manipulates the top of your library. Right. When the Scry keyword was introduced, it was really formalizing a thing that had long existed in the game, all the way back to Alpha, as you said. In this set, there are 30 cards with Scry. One of them is a reprint, Magma Jet. But 30 cards is a lot. Yeah, in fact, I think that's more than all the previous existing Scry cards. Really? I believe there are only 22 um, Scry cards. That's crazy. That have previously been printed. That's really wild. But the problem is with Theros is that they've tacked Scry onto so many effects that are otherwise not aggressively costed. Yeah. So I think, you know, in general, when we approach these set reviews, the first thing we like to do is we like to talk sort of at an abstract theoretical level. What are the synergies in the Type 1 or Vintage format for these keyword mechanics? And I think there's no doubt that Scry is a very potent and popular Type 1 mechanic or Vintage mechanic. The question is, are any of the cards with Scry otherwise playable? Um, I'd like to hone in on one particular question that might f- help focus our discussion of the Scry mechanic, Kevin. Since Scry is constructed around the concept of virtual card advantage, I want to ask you this question. How many Scrys do you think is roughly equivalent to one card draw? I love that question because it, we've had this discussion on our team boards and with a number of other people I have, and I think the answer is somewhere around three, three to four even. I've heard mm-hmm. some some postulating among some people on Twitter that that a scry is worth about half of a card, and I don't think that holds up to close uh, arithmetic. I don't think two scries is worthy of a card. I yeah. think it's more than that. So I consider it between three to four scries is roughly equivalent to a card. One way to potentially analyze that is to ask, would you rather this have 
via cantrip, any given card via cantrip, or say scry two or three or whatever, you know. And I think you're right. I think it is somewhere around three or four. I think maybe scry four is probably better than drawing a card, probably. <laughs> um, but it's 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 a close question. Yeah, I agree. But it also demonstrates just how powerful virtual card advantage is. Um, there's one card in particular I'd like to talk about later on that I think will bring this into, into focus. Um, read the bones, but we'll we'll wait till we get get to that. Remind me to bring that up then. Moving on to the new mechanics in Theros, we have devotion, which is also a modification of an existing thing, but we can talk about that. Devotion is a measure of how much of a given color of mana you have in the mana cost of permanence you control. So, for example, the god cards have different functionality based on what your devotion to their color is. Each mana symbol of that color and the mana cost of permanence you control counts toward your devotion to that color. Steve, this is a very, I think, powerful limiting factor in the vintage format because so many aspects of the format basically push us away from having high devotion values in general. The preponderance of artifacts is one, so certain decks, many permanents and indeed entire decks are colorless. Also, the permanents that we have been incentivized to cast in Vintage have very minimal colored mana requirements for the purposes of efficiency. As well, all the alternate casting cost cards that we use tend to be spells that don't produce permanents. Yeah, all those factors really undermine the effectiveness of devotion. But I think the two key factors, two key factors are Vintage is a format that's far more focused on the stack than the battlefield than other formats. And that simple fact means that decks in Vintage have a much higher proportion of instants and sorceries than they do permanents. And the second point is, is a point that we've talked about, Kevin, which is that, and you just mentioned, which is that, um, decks in Vintage tend to have a much higher proportion of colorless permanents than colored permanents. So the vast majority of permanents on any battlefield are going to be lands and artifacts. And it's not as though vintage games don't go into the the point where they have multiple permanents. Five permanents is not unheard of in a vintage game. But also, games tend to end quickly once permanent counts get high. That's right. There's very rarely such a thing as a board stall in vintage. In, in the permanent heavy decks like Dredge or, or Workshops, in Workshops' case, it's all artifacts. And in Dredge's case, it's... All tokens. Um, yeah, all tokens. Yeah. So devotion just rarely comes up. I mean, I would be surprised... The median devotion for any game of Magic is probably somewhere around one or two. <laughs> yeah, and that would be high. Another thing, another factor is that permits that do exist in Vintage that would trigger devotion or help devotion are often temporary. <laughs> so, so cards like Mr. Grimora that might be put into play aren't there to aren't put into play indefinitely. Yeah, exactly. And, and any permit that is put on the board is at a risk of being removed at any moment. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good point. Is that even though a deck might contain enough cards to build devotion for a particular color, the games don't play out such that those cards stay in play. You can't rely. You can't rely upon them. Yeah. There's too many bolts, plows, things of that nature lingering around. And interestingly, there's a, there's of course an atten- there's a tension with the devotion mechanic such that it needs to be above a certain number in order to have any relevance at all. You wouldn't have a threshold of devotion at one or even two. That's trivial to achieve, assuming you're playing cards in the same color even. So you have to push devotion up into the higher numbers, like four or five, which they've done here, or more, 
in order for it to have some kind of relevance. I'm not devoted to blue just because I have Jace the Mind Sculptor in play. Right. Even if you were to construct devotion such that basically you only need one more additional mana uh, symbol in play on a permanent, on a casting cost of a permanent, that is just very highly conditional in vintage. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just, I mean, it, one might as well be three <laughs> to some extent. It's just so difficult to achieve reliably. Um, unless the bonus is just enormous, it's, you, it's just not something you can rely upon. The other thing is that, you know, these cards with devotion, although they minimize themselves because they, I, I said so they all count, each of the gods counts itself, right? Naturally. Um, it's just to, to get to five, even with it, or functionally four, is just virtually impossible. So that's devotion, which really is not at its best in vintage. Next is heroic. There are plenty of low casting cost creatures with this ability, so from a cost standpoint, it wouldn't be out of the question to cast a heroic creature in vintage. But the simple fact is, is that vintage does not feature effects that target one's own creatures for the purpose of really any kind of beneficial effect. The last one of those that I can think of, which it's been years since it saw play, was Curiosity, which was occasionally yes. played in fish decks. Yes. But otherwise, yeah, the notion of giant growths and or auras in Vintage basically need not apply. Yeah. The other card I was going to say is Berserk. <laughs> <laughs> wow. An awesome example, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, th- this is extremely limited in Vintage because, as you pointed out, first of all, heroism is triggering a creature. These creatures are, in, in almost every case, not very good by themselves. They're not disruptive. They don't satisfy the requirements for playability in Vintage. That is, they don't generate card advantage. They're not disruptive. They don't sort of interfere with the opponent's game plan. And then you have to play this additional thing that actually, you know, like an, an enhanced creature enhancement, which is probably among the least played card type in the entire format. You might have more enchant worlds than enchant creatures. Um, <laughs> And, and the enchant creatures that existed were cards like Control Magic or, you know... <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, threads, threads of Disloyalty. Cards that do target creatures are almost all removal spells, like Plow or Bolt. So they're not something you would use on your own creature to get a boost. So one example is Tormented Hero, which is black mana. One black mana, that's it. It's a 2-1, and it enters the battlefield tapped, and it has Heroic. When you cast a spell that targets Tormented Hero, each opponent loses one life. You gain life equal to the life lost this way. So it really shows an example of hero of heroism, of hero, the heroic um, keyword mechanic. But the problem is, how do you trigger this guy? You know, he's 2-1, so what are you going to play that's going to trigger this? Um, it would be, this mechanic would be so much better if it wasn't a spell, but if it was a spell or ability that targets the creature, then you could really do some cool things. Like, you could go infinite with uh, with the life creatures. That's true, and they pretty clearly guarded against that, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately, yeah. depending on how you look at it. Unfortunately, from our perspective. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I think even as aggressively costed as some of these heroism creatures are, they just pretty much illustrate the inherent weakness in in um, the mechanic. There's one other I, I want to draw attention to, and it's a blue one. There are a couple of, of blue creatures that have it, but there's um, artisan artisan of forms who is cheap enough to be vintage playable. He only costs one and a blue. He's a one-one human wizard, and his heroic ability is whenever you cast a spell that targets artisan of forms, you may have artisan of forms become a copy of target creature and gain this ability again. So this is a would be a very efficient um, clone. Um, but what spell are you going to play, and how? And how would that make this better than something, say, like Phyrexian Metamorph, given just how conditional this is? You know, in theory, this could be a quite powerful thing, right? But 
you can construct scenarios certainly where you could build an engine of sorts almost, but maybe not, if not an engine, you could at least have lots of benefit from piling on effects onto your creatures. And such scenarios might exist in, say, limited or in unusual standard situations, but in vintage, there are simply too many constraints on the efficiency of one's deck to fill it with things like rancors or mutagenic growths or whatever you would need to really build an engine. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just too conditional. The circumstances are too tenuous to, to justify playing these cards and reliably using them. I mean, this card literally does nothing unless you trigger the heroic. <laughs> you know, at least the tormented hero is a two one body, but his heroic isn't isn't just isn't that good enough. Just isn't that great. Shall we move on to monstrosity? Yes. There are 16 cards in the set that have the keyword monstrosity. It's a feature of the set from a flavor standpoint, and basically a monstrosity is written as a cost, monstrosity, and then X. If the creature isn't monstrous, put X plus one plus one counters, and it becomes monstrous. And basically most of the creatures that have the monstrous keyword also have some effect that's keyed off of it. Like the fleece main lion which is a green-white 3-3 creature with three green-white monstrosity 1. As long as Fleece Main Lion is monstrous, it has hexproof and indestructible. So that's the general form, is that you pay the cost, get the monstrous effect, get the counters, and then usually some additional benefit when right. or after you've activated the monstrous ability. So what is your opinion of monstrosity as a mechanic? <laughs> it is a limited mechanic and possibly occasionally a standard mechanic, but not for vintage not the least of which is the reason that the mana cost to activate Monstrous starts at four in this set. Yeah. And well, th- this mechanically speaking, th- this resembles the level up mechanic, which we've seen before. The difference is that this is far more expensive than, than the leveling up yeah. mechanic. Has- I think that's a good comparison, and level up really never made its place in Vintage either, but for different reasons, I would say. The simple fact is is that this effect is fine if you get to the point of having the mana for it. I should just mention, I think there has been at least one level-up card that saw play in Vintage. I think it was a red creature in the mountains once again. It was, it was I think, very marginal. And the simple fact is is that it's a good mechanic from the standpoint of if you ever get the mana to get it, it's yeah. pretty beneficial. I mean, the effect, they, they weren't cautious in the effect that they gave these cards. The Fleece Main Lion I just mentioned becomes slightly bigger but hexproof and indestructible. That's that's awesome if you get there. But every card that has Monstrous or Monstrosity would need to be playable without that ability. Exactly. That's where I was going to go. Yeah. It, it's a little bit like Metalcraft. To analyze the card, you have to see whether it be playable first without it. Mm-hmm. And it just in given, I mean, at least in Metalcraft, it's it's achievable. Here, it's it's you know some of these monstrosity costs are just way beyond what's what's not just possible, but what can be reasonably expected in Vintage. And Metalcraft is a great example because Metalcraft is feasible in Vintage because the condition is something that's already built into the format. The artifacts are omnipresent. Having four mana lying around just to make one of your creatures bigger is not something that's omnipresent in Vintage. (laughs) Yeah. Last and least in Theros is Bestow. We have 15 cards with Bestow, and Bestow is a admittedly flavorful mechanic whereby a creature can exist as an enchantment or or a creature. And Bestow is written as Bestow with a cost, if you cast this card for its bestow cost, it's an aura spell with enchant creature. It becomes a creature again if it's not enchanted, or sorry, attached to a creature. And all of these cards basically have the form of 
enchant creature gets plus X plus X and abilities where those numbers are the power and toughness of this creature and its abilities also. So the first example in the set, Celestial Archon, is a 4-4 flying first strike. Enchanted creature gets plus 4 plus 4 and has flying and first strike. So it's like you're riding the creature or enchanted by the creature. It's however you choose to envision it. And Steve, we've already covered how auras basically indeed not apply in Vintage unless they're stealing your opponent's creatures, and they haven't printed that one yet. But the real damning evidence for Bestow is similar to Monstrosity, is that this effect starts at 4 mana. Yeah. If it's not Control Magic, and we haven't paid 4 mana for Control Magics in Vintage for quite a long time either. Yes. And so, really, it needs to be pretty amazing in order for us to want to pay four mana to enchant a creature in Vintage. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the flip side of the problem with um, hero heroism or heroic, which is that you know, in Vintage, you just don't use creature enhancements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is by definition a creature enhancement. So there's a really good chance you don't even have another creature in play, even if you're playing the creature deck. You know, let alone be able to cast this. So even aside from the um, casting cost, there's a problem of having a target to actually bestow this onto. Mm -hmm. Basically, those things exclude this from being a vintage playable mechanic. Yeah, you'd have to have a... Basically, I think the same analysis applies for the previous mechanic, which is that in order for this to be playable, it would have to be playable with with Sans Bestow. It would have to be playable without Bestow. And none of them are, basically. They're all limited-style creature uh, costs and or effects. We're going to turn to some of the cycles in the set now, but I think it's worth touching on the fact that this set was designed top-down. Why don't you just remind everyone what that means? Well, top-down is something we saw prominently in Innistrad, whereby they take a concept at the design level when no cards exist and talk about how they could make cards to represent a concept. So the best example in Theros, I think, is gods. How would you build a god into a magic card? And if you did, what kind of mechanics and or costing and or effects would it have? And many, many cards in Theros, if not nearly all of them, were designed in that fashion. They said, we want to build a world where there are gods of each color and in the future, different color combinations. How would those gods manifest as cards? What would they do? What would their followers be like, et cetera, et cetera? And then they build cards around those concepts. Yeah, I I think, you know, what some of these mechanics suggest and what I think the cycles we're about to talk about, including the gods, which we'll touch on first, reflect is that some of these cards are just hopelessly complicated or or way overly complicated. The bestow mechanic, I had to read it several times before I really got it. And it's still a very awkwardly phrased mechanic. One reason for that is that the, the word has is a term of art in magic that has a very specific definition. So they have to use the word with instead of has. Which I love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you would. <laughs> but but the point is that, you know, some of these cards are just ridiculously complex. And I think we can talk about the gods now, but the gods are all legendary artifact enchantment enchantments, creatures, right? Not artifacts. <laughs> Their equipment are artifacts. They're just legendary enchantment creature gods, which is enough. <laughs> which is, I mean, we've never seen anything like this before. It really bleeds the definition of what a card type is. And I think leaves that question somewhat unsettling. From a top-down standpoint, they really kind of rewrote the book in terms of card types and functionality. 
with these gods and their equipment. The notion of something being an enchantment and a creature, we saw exactly one time before this set, and it was a future-shifted card in Future Sight. The whole notion just kind of boggles the mind about what a a, a being could be an enchantment and a creature, and then their equipment being enchantments and artifacts at the same time is just... It, it really makes you jump through hoops from a flavor perspective. Yeah, I mean, we've seen cards, almost every card type can become another card type. So with the Hidden Gibbons cards, we've seen cards that are enchantments become creatures, and, and so on, and or creatures that are sleeping enchantments that become a sorcery. But we've never seen this kind of fusion before, where you have legendary artifact or legendary creature en- enchantments, you know, and it's um, it's not quite clear what is going on with this. Like I said, I think it's, it feels a little unsettling. Well, I'm with you. I, I don't really enjoy the complexity of the flavor here, but I'm not necessarily a Vorthos. I would point out, though, that when you bleed like this from a mechanical standpoint, that certain formats suffer more than others. And sadly, Vintage is one that does. Because card types, as you, after you add card types to cards... You obviously make them more vulnerable to effects that would detrimentally affect those card types. And in Vintage, adding the word artifact to a card really reduces its strength in the format. Yeah, artifacts are probably the most vulnerable permanent type. And even though these equipment of the gods, these these bidents and spears and such, probably aren't good enough to see Vintage play anyway, the fact that they made them enchantment artifacts means that they're just that much worse. You're, you're, yes. It's hopeless that you would keep one of these on the table in vintage. Yeah, I'd rather be a I'd rather be a land enchantment creature. <laughs> right, <laughs> creature is one of the safer card types in vintage. Ironically, um, it, it, but I, I, again, like I said, the reason it's unsettling is because it's not just because I have some sort of quarrel with flavor, but because for the reason you just said, which is that. Um, I wonder about unnecessary complexity. Magic is already a complicated game, as is. And when you add all these other elements, you're just, you know, the, the, I think each additional element should have to justify itself on its own terms. And I'm not sure that that's the case here. I'd like to throw in one other thing, and that's that the notion of gods of sorts has already been done in Magic at least once in the form of the Eldrazi. Yes. And the Eldrazi, while they were not shy on complexity from a creature standpoint, they conveyed this concept of godliness or otherworldliness in a very different and mechanically less troublesome way, in my opinion, yes. and I think yours too. So it, it's kind of a double whammy in that these cards are complex and they're seem they seem to be much more complex than their prior examples might necessitate. I think the Eldrazi did a pretty good job of conveying yes. a sort of otherworldliness or godliness in terms of magic. And these other gods, well, they're just different. And they're yep. really odd and don't quite speak to me in the same way. I think that's exactly right. And so the, the, the assortment of cycles that attend to these gods are the, the weapons they use, their equipment, and they have the ordeals as well. And they have temples to themselves, which we'll talk about, which we should talk about now. Um, but all, almost all of these cycles suffer from this the same problem of overcomplexity. As, as we already mentioned, the equipment are legendary enchantment artifacts. <laughs> yep. Almost seemingly to ratchet up the fragility of the thing. The gods are at least indestructible, mm-hmm. which is pretty clearly a nod to all their creature types, or all their card types, I mean, uh, making them so fragile. Yeah. Let's talk about these temples, though. Okay. The temples are the dual lands of this set, and taking, for example, the blue-black land, Temple of Deceit, Temple of De- Deceit enters the battlefield tapped, 
When Temple of Deceit enters the battlefield, scry one. Tap to add blue or black to your mana pool. So it's pretty clear that and the rare dual land slot for this set, they're valuing scry pretty highly, so much so that there's not even an option or way to put this land into play untapped. And given our conversation about the value of scry, I'm kind of of two minds on the notion. There's simply no way that I'm going to play a, a dual land that comes in tapped in vintage. That much is clear. Yep. But also, broadly speaking, I don't think I value scry this highly, such as to justify this drawback for a dual land. Yeah, I, these, you know, when Sam Stoutard, um revealed that they were planning to print new dual lands in Theros, I think a lot of people were very excited because the legendary theme, as we talked about before, meant that there may be the possibility for legendary dual lands. Instead, I mean, if there's one drawback, there's two drawbacks on dual lands that have been proven to be unpopular in the past. One is the whole idea of slow lands or depletion lands that you can only use every other turn. Those are just, those simply just don't cut it. But the other is the ones that come into play tapped. The ones that come into play tapped are only acceptable if there's a way to to make it so they don't have to come into play tap. So whether the shock lands where you can just choose to pay two life or lands like the ones um, in Lorowin where if you have a certain card type in your hand, they can come into play on tap. But to be forced to have these lands come into play tap, these dual lands come into play tap is, in my view, unacceptable. Unacceptable for vintage, of course. In standard, they will be played out of necessity. And in standard, the cost of coming into play tapped may equate more favorably to the value of a scry one. So I'm sure they'll be pretty widely played and, and genuinely good there. But yeah, in vintage, they need not apply. And it, it, to be honest, it, I am disappointed in these lands from a, from a historical standpoint. I think they really are a step yeah. back in terms of dual land history. Exactly. Especially when there are so many interesting, you know, and viable design options. You know, uh, the, the dual lands in Future Sight really, you know, I think they really burst the notion that dual lands have to be um, con- conformed to a certain kind of, um, you know, uh, ap- appearance or form or structure. You can have dual lands that do all kinds of things, like River of Tears, where you can tap it for one color if, if you have a, if you played a land or not, or if you have a man in your mana pool, or things like Horizon Canopy that can generate card advantage in other ways. I would take Horizon Canopy over these dual lands any day of the week. <laughs> you know, I don't want to pigeonhole Scry as the problem with these cards, given that we've discussed Scry. It's a decent effect. It's a vintage valuable effect, even. It's just that the power level comparison between a tapped land slowing you down and Scry 1 is yes. just, it seems so disparate in my opinion. Yes, exactly. And there's also an irony that these dual lands are so simply, you know, very simple in their, in, in their form, but everything else in this set is ridiculously complex. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't considered that. It, it really does stand out. And if they had tried something a, a bit more complicated, it might have been a, a bit more successful and well-received, I think. Yes, some of the options for legendary dual lands that we discussed in our prior show would fit right in with the complexity of these god cards. Exactly. If there's a set to have very complex dual lands, it's this one. Yeah. Let's see some, see some weird, weird filter lands that scry or something. Yeah, exactly. Then you'd be cooking. Well, I think we should move on to some specific cards, right? Let's do it. First up, we have Swan Song. This is an instant for blue, counter-target enchantment, instant, or sorcery spell. Its controller puts a 2-2 blue bird creature token with flying onto the battlefield. I really want this card to be good, and it it certainly has some upside with regard to its flexibility. 
But if there's anything that the last few years of podcasting has taught me and the vintage format as a whole, it's that there is just a log jam at the <laughs> one blue mana counterspell area such that I really think Swan Song is is very challenged to see any play at all. Well, how, how far we've come, Kevin, because I remember a couple of years ago we were podcasting and we were talking about the growing diversity of counterspells at this, you know, and part of it is counterspells being printed at this cost. And now now we've reached a, a point where there's like more than enough. So, you know, there's spell snare, spell pierce, mm-hmm. spawn step, etc. all these things play. If this if this had come along three years ago, it would be a very different animal. I was going to say exactly that. If Flusterstorm had never seen print, we would be much higher on this card. But in terms of countering instants and sorceries, at least, Flusterstorm does the job just much better, much more flexibly, and it also preys on Storm, which is obviously one of the keys of the vintage format. The addition of encountering enchantments that Swang Song adds is very niche, very narrow in the format. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, you're already getting into the sort of the analysis of the card, but I think we should distinguish on the one hand from a card that is at least vintage playable and something that we think we'll see play. Ah, yes, good point. So the casting cost and the effect, I think we've jumped the gun, as you said, but those are both clearly vintage playable. One blue right. mana counter spell is standard in the format. And ha- having as many targets as this does that are relevant to the format, that part is obviously viable as well. It's just that the drawback is enough of a drawback that you wouldn't, I think, include this over any of the other myriad options. Well, uh, before before we... You know, so you think you're jumping to the conclusion already. I think we need a more a nuanced analysis before we go there. Fair enough. But one thing that's, that's, I think, notable is that a couple months ago I talked about how one approach to design for Vintage and Legacy is to design cards that are situationally better or situationally worse than existing playables. And I think this card fits that bill very well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so let's just... In comparing it to, to um, Spell Pierce, you know, which obviously sees a, a, a vintage play, although less so than it did maybe a year or two ago. Um, what's interesting is this Spell Pierce can counter a, a Planeswalker and it can counter artifacts, although it can't counter creatures. Um, but it has that conditional element that if the opponent can pay for two, then they can overcome the Spell Pierce, where that's definitely not the case here. Um, it is a non-conditional counter, which occasionally does compare favorably to even the likes of Flusterstorm. Exactly. Exactly. If your opponent has like seven mana on the table because they've got an Academy and two Moxen, mm-hmm. you know, this card might actually be better than Flusterstorm you know, in a number of situations. Granted. And and like you, you pointed out, this card can counter enchantments, which Flusterstorm cannot. So it's, in that respect, not in, not strictly inferior to Flusterstorm there either. Um, and then there may even be instances in which the putting a creature into play is not really a drawback. <laughs> Naturally. This card has a very relevant tactical effect in Oath of Druids decks. Exactly. And if you wanted to combat instant sorceries and enchantments in Oath of Druids, this would give you a way to do that while reducing your reliance on Forbidden Orchard. And it's also good in Oath for another reason, which is that you're not likely to want to counter their creatures anyway. So if your opponent plays you know, Young Pyromancer or Dark Confidant, fine with you. So this isn't going to be that particular fact that it won't be, can't counter our creatures is not something that's really that concerning in the Oath deck. That's true. This card in Oath versus another control deck, for example where you're not fighting over Dark Confidants or Snapcaster Mages per se, but you get into the mid-game and you're attempting to resolve an Oath, this is the perfect companion to attempting to resolve Oath of Druids. 
On a related note, Swan Song happens to be quite good against burning tendrils. Yes, it does. It's very good at countering Oath of Druids and many of the setup spells and the draw sevens in that deck. And giving that deck a 2-2 also partially invalidates Oath of Druids and has a minimal drawback yes. when you're fighting a deck that's trying to combo you out. So, Yeah, it counters it counters Oath of Druids, Necropotence, and Bargain. Right, as well as the draw sevens. It counters all the draw sevens, all the broken cards. And Burning the only Wish. Thing it doesn't counter, yeah, and the only thing, and Burning Wish, the only thing it doesn't counter is a hard cast memory jar, which is the least that you'd actually be playing that. Right, so technically it's very well positioned against Burning Long. Yeah. But it's not very well positioned against many decks in the format. It's not any better than Flusterstorm against Workshops or Course. Same thing with Dredge, basically. Uh, Flusterstorm is not dead against Dredge, of course, but this card yeah. doesn't really help you any in that matchup. It hurts you because they can flashback Cabal Therapy. <laughs> That's right. So it's actively worse than Flusterstorm against Dredge. And generally speaking, it's not good when you're matched up against creature decks. So if you're playing against Noble Fish or any other similar deck that's trying to overwhelm you, you're doing yourself a disservice by countering even some of their best spells with this. Uh, it's interesting. Let me ask you something. What card do you think is the closest comparison to this, Kevin? Flusterstorm or, or Spell Pierce? Neither. My closest comparison would be Dispel. Fascinating. And Fascinating. It, and Dispel is basically an unplayed in Vintage. But I think that's the closest comparison for this card because I wouldn't, I know we just talked about plenty of operational examples of this, but I wouldn't play this card primarily for its anti-enchantment effect. It's a nice to have, really. But the fact that it counters unconditionally instants and sorceries means it's quite flexible in, in addressing things that Flusterstorm is basically trying to address. And so, but Flusterstorm has that issue where it's very good in certain scenarios like counter battles, and it's very good in certain scenarios like fighting storm. But the simple efficiency of Swan Song, I would equate more to dispel and possibly spell snare. I I think this card to me is closer to spell pierce than any of those, and I don't like the comparison to Flusterstorm, even though it it's closer in terms of the, the card types it hits mm-hmm. to Flusterstorm than probably spell pierce because of. Spellpierce can artifacts and planeswalkers, whereas this hits exactly the same card types that Flusherstorm hits plus one. But the reason I don't like it is because Flusherstorm, to me, again, has that last word thing built in, <laughs> as well as the card advantage possibility. So just this past weekend, I countered two cards with Flusherstorm, the same Flusherstorm. Right. You know, an ancestral and another card. Um, and, and, and neither Spellpierce nor this card has that. But I, I also think that the quote drawback is, is good enough that it could very well see play in a control oak deck. Yeah. And in fact, I would expect it might, might very well. It's think about how this might help you reduce your reliance on Forbidden Orchard, in fact. I agree. That's basically, if it's going to show up, that's where it's going to show up. I don't think any deck is going to sideboard this card for any particular matchup. Despite how yeah. good it is against Burning out, burning Tendrils, I mean, I don't think there's any way I would start sideboard this card just for that matchup. Yeah, I su- and there are better cards. And there are better yeah. cards, yes. I suppose if I was really in a heavy Oath metagame, if there were one or more players that were consistently top-aiding with Oath in my metagame, then I might put this in the sideboard of something like Bomberman or Grixis Control. But that's that may not ever exist. There may be no such place. <laughs> it seems unlikely, and it's definitely not the norm. So I, I'm with you. I would think if it's going to see play, it's going to be in a controlling, a more controlling Oath build in place of some other one-mana disruptive spell. And even then, it's not going to be in high numbers either. You're probably looking at most at a two-of in a deck yeah. like that. 
It suffers, obviously, from the same challenges that Flusterstorm and Mental Misstep do in their uh, inapplicability against workshops. So you can't run very many of these. And if you want to add these to an existing blue deck, you're going to almost certainly need to cut Flusterstorm and or Mental Misstep for them. Or cut into them. Exactly, cut into them, yes. So decks that are running 3-3 three and three today, which is kind of a, a common configuration of those two spells, may switch to 2-2-2, two, 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 for example, to accommodate Swan Song. So uh, I think, you know, if we look at tournament results, Flusterstorm sees, I think, significantly more play than Spellpierce right now for a lot of reasons. Um, do you think that hurt or hinders this card? I think that hinders this card. I think if you're comparing against Spellpierce versus Flusterstorm, that the the effect of Flusterstorm at winning counter wars and or counteracting Storm is what really attracts people to it, in addition to the card advantage you mentioned. And this card doesn't do those things. I think positionally, this card, from a deck construction standpoint, does compare more favorably against Spell Pierce. Yeah, I think this card is closer to Spell Pierce. And how many Spell Pierces appeared in Top 8 today in August? Yeah, less than half as many as Flusterstorms. That and I would expect less than half as many swan songs as spell pierces. Right. So it'll be, I think, quite few, if it, so if at your- all. I, I, I honestly find myself wondering if people won't test this and then cut it from their deck prior to tournament play. I would expect <laughs> many intelligent players to test this card for all the reasons we've cited, and I would expect many of those testings to determine that it's just not good enough or it's not where you want to be or it's not right for their metagame or their deck. The control oath concept is not very common today. Most of the oath builds are trying to kill you quickly. I mean, they still have control elements, just like every combo control deck in Vintage does. So I'm really close to saying zero on this one. That said, I think someone will try it. I think someone will put it, maybe even just in their sideboard. Boy, I really want to say zero I think a lot of people are going to test this and be very disappointed with it. But I haven't tested it myself, literally, so I'm not certain. I'm going to go with one. Just one. Hmm. It's a very... I think that's a very sound prediction. I was I was going to actually just say two, because I think we saw six... Okay, so we saw six spell pierces in vintage top eights in August. Mm-hmm. Generally, we give this three months. So that extrapolating that is about 18 spell pierce period. I think... You know, I'm going to actually say three. I think this is going to see significantly less play than Spell Pierce, but I'm I'm not. I think it's going to be a few more than one. So I'm going to go three. Okay, I think it's reasonable. I think it's also a sound assessment. It will be up to some player preference as to where it lands. I want to move on to another card that makes guys. We didn't talk too much about the drawback of making a two-two blue creature, except for its interaction against Oath of Druids or in conjunction with. Curse of the Swine, though, is a sorcery for X blue blue, exile X target creatures. For each creature exiled this way, its controller puts a 2-2 green boar creature token onto the battlefield. Now, Steve, we didn't talk about the drawback of giving your opponent a 2-2 very much with Swan Song, because it's just one 2-2. But if you really want to maximize Curse of the Swine, you want to be using it on more than just one creature, if you can help. You want to get card advantage out of this thing of a sort, and you want to use it on two or more creatures to get rid of their Dark Confidant and Snapcaster Mage, or get rid of their Lodestone Golem and and Metalworker, something like that. 
Now, setting aside the notion of castability for a moment, I want to think at the notion of mono blue removal in vintage is something we actually touched on one of the rare examples of that in in uh, control magic, <laughs> which has been ages. And th- these days, Jace really counts as the mono blue removal. But this notion of straight-up exiling creatures with a blue card is pretty novel. Yes. This card, I mean, this card can hit a, a Blightsteel Colossus and turn it into a 2-2 green boar for three mana. But but Wipe Away can do that in an uncounterable way. The question is whether this sort of flexibility and scalability makes it, uh, makes it a potential playable. So, for example, you could activate this and exile a Dark Confidant and a Blightsteel Colossus for just four mana. And that's really living the dream. <laughs> if you spend four mana and get their Colossus and their Bob, that is, that's, that's really worth the money, I think. But what of the notion that you're giving them four power worth of creatures in replacement? That's non-trivial at all. <laughs> so if you remove three creatures, they have six power worth of creatures. I mean, you likely don't have the defenses to deal with that. I would say that over the history of Vintage, this card would have been just incredible from the inception up to about 2002 to 2005 give or take any point in the history of vintage up to that point this card would have been amazing it would have been heavily played and just a a staple yeah but the no one thing one thing you could do in a blue deck is you could give them a bunch of creatures and then you could powder keg them all away immediately well and that's what i wanted to get at is that control decks this is definitely a controlling card in in today's metagame control decks in this day and age have adapted to other colors for its spot removal and creature removal almost exclusively yes we do rely upon jace to control creatures one at a time but when it comes to removing creatures we're looking at lightning bolts we're looking at pyroclasm we're looking at swords to plowshares etc etc there simply is nothing that we expect to cast off of two islands that's going to permanently remove someone's creature. That's why I say back in the day, this would have been amazing. Decks would have been able to consolidate their colors a little bit more and and just really narrow their options and be more effective. In this day and age, though, with so many creatures in the format and the preponderance of planeswalkers in control decks... The notion of just turning your opponent's creature into a less good one is a little less attractive. Yeah. Um, that's why I say getting rid of a Bob and a dark and a Blightsteel Colossus, that's living the dream. You have no problem turning those two creatures into 2-2 two, two boars because you're getting a lot of incremental value just by removing their abilities. I think I think the more important thing is, is not looking at the power, but looking at the casting cost. I mean, Engineer Explosives is like a three of in land sale. Mm-hmm. So the and I mean, and the toughness does matter because you can. I mean, these creatures can't can't attack into a Mistress Factory. So I I I mean I'm I, I see this as a potential card for like a land sale deck. I think that's a good point. I think that's the most natural starting point. But keep in mind that the average land sale deck, as I said, has adapted a number of removal spells in other colors for other reasons, like your lightning bolts and your swords to plowshares, etc. Would you cut a lightning bolt from a landstill deck for a curse of the swine? No, and what's interesting is that exile putting a blightsteel colossus in someone's hand is just about as bad as exiling. <laughs> you know, Granted. and those those decks play with Jace anyway, so I I have a really hard time envisioning where this would see play in contemporary vintage. I'm with you. If we, you remember brown paper bag, of course. You think that? Uh, yeah, my, my old school mono blue. Think that deck would have played deck. any copies of this? No, probably not, <laughs> because you just use powder keg and you know, powder keg can remove a, a um, 
a Phyrexian Dreadnought just about as well as this thing. Can. <laughs> That's a good point. There was no Blightsteel Colossus back then. Well, I'm with you. I think that this card also factoring in Swan Song, if a deck is already set up or can readily set, be set up to get rid of the tokens as part of some existing effect like Engineered Explosives and or Ratchet Bomb, then I think this card does have a place. If you're having trouble with creatures in a landstill deck or there are or your opponents are adapting to some troublesome creatures that Lightning Bolts and Jace can't handle, then perhaps Curse of the Swine will have a home in that kind of setting. And you can construct scenarios against, say, something like Noble Fish, where you play out some lands, and they play out uh, a Noble Hierarch and a Tarmogoyf, and then you spend four mana and exile both of those creatures with an Engineer Explosives already sitting in play. That's a pretty good trade for you, but it's still not yeah. it's still not perfect. You're still kind of two yeah, for twoing yourself. Still two cards to, to potentially wipe out, you know, two or more cards. I think though that with Cavern of Souls pushing some of these aggro decks like humans decks into sort of a place where you can't really counter the creatures as well, this does have a place in answering those threats. But I'm just not sure if it's quite good enough. So, I mean, for three mana, you get one rid of one creature. For four, two. For five, three. But you better have something to deal with those tokens immediately, like a Ratchet Bomb or Engineer Explosives, mm-hmm. or else you're going to be quickly overwhelmed. That's my assessment as well. You, re- you ready to do predictions? Go for it. I, sadly, am going to say zero. I am much, I'm, I'm much more confident saying that some people might test this, but it's probably going to get cut every time once they do. Yeah, I think that the creature decks are such a marginal part of the type of the vintage format at the moment that there's really not a strong incentive to even test one of these. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna go zero as well. Although I would be delighted to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do want this card and Swan Song to see play. I think they're very flavorful additions to the vintage arsenal of anti anti creatures are this can generate card advantage it's just too expensive yeah agreed and it has value in being a blue board sweeper but not enough value in today. something very strange would have to happen to vintage for the days of mono blue to return i think yeah next up we have bident of thassa this is our blue gods equipment card legendary enchantment artifact for two blue blue whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player you may draw a card and it has one blue tap creatures your opponent's control attack this turn if able this card is a pretty clear comparison to one coastal piracy from mercadian masks which is a enchantment for the same mana cost that has basically the same ability to start with without the additional tap ability now coastal piracy need not apply in vintage but that's mostly because we have Edric, Spymaster of Trest, who is a basically a Grey Ogre that has this ability in his text box as well. So, Steve, the casting cost at 2 blue blue is pretty clearly vintage playable. See Jace and a number of other cards. And the effect of causing your creatures to draw you additional cards when they deal damage is clearly vintage playable. See Edric, which has his place and makes top 8 appearances occasionally in Noble Fish style decks. Do you think that you would play a legendary enchantment artifact that cost one more than Edric for the benefit of having more of this effect and or not committing an extra creature to the board? No, but <laughs> Kevin, you, you might not know this. Um, Mark Perez had coastal piracies in his original 
blue-red fish deck in 2002. Wow, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, there are so many ways to generate tokens now that you could imagine a card like Coastal Piracy or Edric or even this with Pyromancer could be quite powerful indeed. But I don't think this card is actually that much better. It's, 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 I think it's actually debatable why this card is even better than Coastal Piracy because, of the, because as you pointed out, as we discussed earlier, Artifact is the most vulnerable card type in the entire format, mm-hmm. probably even more so than Creature, <laughs> amazingly enough. Um, and, the, and the additional ability is basically irrelevant in Vintage. Yeah, not totally irrelevant, but basically. And I think, uh, you know, that makes this on par with Coastal Piracy, which means it's probably not going to see any play. Um, go ahead. And as we said earlier, Creature is one of the safer card types in Vintage, so Edric has that advantage going for him. Yeah, at least relative to Artifact, it's safer. Yes, <laughs> relative to Artifact. So a card that's slightly fragiler and significantly more expensive at four yeah. versus three it doesn't we should we should clarify that one of the reasons one of the reasons that creature is safer is not because there's less creature removal but because it's harder to counter given that neither spell pierce nor fluster storm nor really mental misstep hit most of the creatures in the format right right and also to another extent if you were to add this legendary art enchantment artifact to your otherwise creature filled deck you're turning on marginal cards in game 1 against your control opponents you're actually making their main deck Ancient Grudge or Hercules Recall relevant where it wouldn't be otherwise. That's right. And so it, it is just that much more fragile. Yeah, this would be a card that would power up Young Pyromancer or something like that, but I don't think I don't think that this is this is actually better than Coastal Piracy, which is not exactly a, a thrilling combo with Young Pyromancer when you have Skull Clamp as an option. <laughs> Alright, I don't think we need to go much further. Are you zeros across the board on this one? Zeros across the board. Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Let's talk about Dissolve. Now we're not talking about this from the standpoint of will we see this see play in vintage. This is basically cancel plus scry. It's one blue blue instant counter target spell scry one. It's a nice upgrade from cancel. But Steve, what are your thoughts on this spell in general? I don't think there are any three casting cost counter spells that can be playable in, in this format. I think two is the absolute most, and it has to be as ridiculous as mana drain. There was a alternate casting cost three mana counter spell that someone made up about a year ago during one of the set spoiler seasons. You remember that? It was like it, it was an alternate casting cost spell snare, I think, or something like it. Counter a spell that costs two or less or something like that. Mm. And you and I talked about that at the time, even though it didn't turn out to be real. We talked about it conceptually saying that card is very attractive for vintage. It, it had a mana cost of three, but you could pitch cast it like Force of Will. Yeah. And to use that as an example, obviously I'm cheating the scenario because it's pitch castable, but the notion of paying three mana for a counter spell in vintage hasn't, has it ever really existed? <laughs> I'm trying to think of 10 years ago if there was a three no. mana counter that ever saw play, even situationally. Type one or vintage, no. Yeah. The closest thing you would get would be prohibit with kicker. So we're really approaching this one from a just from a theoretical standpoint, not actually predicting anything about so what it. Is, what, is it that it, what is it that interests you? You're trying to figure out the value of Scry here? Oh, yes. That's another reason why I brought it up, is because this is pretty clearly just an upgrade from Cancel. Now, I think it's pretty widely agreed in the R&D community that the proper mana cost for counter-target spell is somewhere between 2 and 3 mana. It's It should be more than blue-blue, but Cancel is overcosted. It should be less than blue-blue 1. 
And I think this card is just a further evolution of that theoretical concept. I think you can continue to graft things onto blue, blue, one and have them be acceptable counter spells like dissipate. Well, dismiss is blue, blue, two and draws a card. Mm -hmm. And if we decide that one scry is like one third or one fourth of a card, I would maybe even want dismiss over this card. Yeah, I definitely would. No, I wouldn't play either in Vintage, but I think in, in many other contexts, like in Commander, for example, where you'd be making that choice, you'd almost certainly choose Dismiss. But I just think as a thought exercise, this card points to the delicate balance that R&D has to go through in order to properly cast the simple effect of counter-target spell. Yeah, it's fascinating. Anyway, let's move on to one that is a little more interesting. Chained to the Rocks. Let me read through this one, Steve. I know you're interested to talk about it. It's an enchantment aura for white. Enchant mountain you control. When chained to the rocks enters the battlefield, exile target creature and opponent controls until chained to the rocks leaves the battlefield. So this is the this is the child of Swords to Plowshares and Journey to Nowhere with a little bit of cartography mixed in. What do you think? So this card definitely has the pedigree of Obliat, Journey to Nowhere, as you mentioned. Um, but what's interesting is that this is as efficient as Swords to Plowshares, but it has this strange conditionality, which is that you have to have a mountain in play, um, which makes it very difficult to evaluate because we don't see a lot of cards like this. You know, first of all, this is a white card that you have to be playing red to use and heavy red so that you have enough, you have a mountain in play reliably one or two when you want to cast this. Um, but there aren't a lot of ways to remove enchantments, especially enchantments like banning a land. This is going to be functionally a Swords to Plowshares that doesn't give your opponent life, I think, most of the time. Don't you think? No, I don't think. Because, for one, white-red is a rare color combination in Vintage. Either one of those colors is played, and sometimes even in the same deck, like with multicolor control decks, but this being almost like a hybrid spell, Boros Mana, functionally, is pretty uncommon in Vintage. What The best way to facilitate this would be to either have a Tundra and a Volcanic Island in play, or yep. to simply have a Plateau. Problem is, Wasteland exists. So yep. you're frequently, if you try to put this on a non-basic land, just going to end up giving the creature back at the next Wasteland opportunity, and Wasteland is omnipresent in the format. Yep. So it would be a very common play. If you were to build a deck that featured this heavily, and your opponent played Lodestone Golem, and you played a land and a mox, fetched out a plateau, and chained that Lodestone Golem to the rocks on turn one, it's going to be very common that on the next turn they're so, just going to waste your plateau and you're going to give that guy back. So to be reliable, this has to be on a basic mountain. I, I foresaw the, the wasteland problem, too. Naturally. So, but, but so then to further answer your question, as you put it, the notion of having a basic mountain in a deck with white cards is just, well, it's basically not happening in Vintage these days. Not that it's impossible, but the deck that would want to do that would be dramatically different than anything we see right now and pretty difficult to justify just for playing this card to deny your opponent some life. Over swords. Over swords, yes. There is another another issue to it, though, which is that, again, going back to our discussion, this card can't be countered by Flusterstorm. Fair. And it, what? Fair. It will resolve slightly more often than a Swords to Plowshares would for that reason. But on the same token, if you use basic mountain plus white mana source as the cost of entry for this card in many matchups, then you're also denying yourself casting this card even when you have white mana in certain cases. And it, it, I mean, but I also, yeah, that, that is true. But I also like the fact that, um, that, that the, in the decks that would, would be white and red, the life probably matters. That is true. I would agree with you there. The deck that would result of that combination and constructing around this card would almost certainly be 
agro-focused, almost certainly feature some burn, some lightning bolts at the very least, and denying your opponent the life, especially like against workshops, denying your opponent the five life for plowing their lodestone, that would matter. That would be the difference in some games. Yeah, I think this card is playable in a white-red X-beat deck. That has access to a basic mountain. Well, you that or uh, certainly or a deck that plays with a lot of Blood Moon effects. Ah, that too. Very good synergy with Blood Moon. I forgot to... I forgot to notice that. Yeah, I think that you are listing some viable effects in Vintage, and Blood Moon is certainly playable, or Moon Man, most most likely. And White Red in aggro is not making top eights commonly in the format, but it has happened. It has happened. Not just White Red necessarily, but those two colors in multicolor aggro. I just... I just think this introduces too many conditions to get the the benefits against Flusterstorm that you cited and and the, the benefit of the life gain. If you wanted a non-life-giving answer to creatures post-sideboard, for example, you wouldn't look at this. Against workshops, especially if you're in white and red, those are the colors that are best about getting rid of artifacts. Yeah. So that wouldn't be a problem at all. Against other creature decks, yes, possibly. A uh, white-red deck or heavily heavily white-red deck going up against, say, Noblefish, it might want to save that life. That seems like a potential. But Noblefish is so punishing in terms of its efficiency of creatures and its disruption that I have a feeling you would gladly trade life for additional flexibility. Fair. So I take it you're predicting zero play, zero playable. Yeah, I'm predicting zero, but I'm glad for all the, the scenarios that you mentioned. Yeah, I'm I'm predicting zero as well, but I I I do think this is playable vintage, and I think it's playable in the in the white red beat stack. I just want to bring up one other minor aspect, and that is the the uh, budget concept. Swords to Plowshares is by no means a prohibitively costed card on the secondary market, <laughs> but for players who are interested in playing vintage and proxies is an issue, proxies are an issue. Then, then perhaps this is the sort of card that makes it into your budget deck, in addition to several other alternatives. Just a thought. Let's move on to one Ashen Rider. This card is pretty cool. <laughs> the casting cost I love. Four white, white, black, black. Creature Archon, always for a good time. Flying, when Ashen Rider enters the battlefield or dies, exile target permanent, and it is 5-5. Five, five. Steve, that mana cost... I don't know if it's ever actually existed before in Magic, but it's pretty clear that to me that the mana cost is not the relevant metric by which to define playability for this card. Yeah, well, there is a and one of the reasons I requested we include because Angel Despair has been used um, at least in the past in Dredge as a singleton or even a two of as just a general removal spell that you use Dread Return for, and this is actually I think better than better than um, an Angel Despair because this card exiles a permanent when it comes into play and when it dies, which means you can flashback Cabal Therapy, sacrificing it to exile a second permanent. Absolutely. If one were inclined to use Angel of Despair these days, Ashen Rider would definitely go in instead, both because of the exile and because of the multiple uses, as you said. But Angel of Despair hasn't made a top eight for more than a year now. So you're already trying to shoot down our our vintage playable. Come on. (laughs) I I would say this card is vintage playable, but but no one has done it lately with Angel of Despair, and so I see no reason for that trend to change. Why do you think that is? What happened to Angel of Despair? Why has it disappeared? I think two things have happened. I think the players... Okay, new cards were printed, those being Mental Misstep and Graftigger's Cage and Rest in Peace, which I think 
while there were plenty of other answers to dredge before, I think those cards specifically caused dredge players to look for more efficient answers to all the hate cards. So you got main decking, got chewers, you got wisp mares in the sideboard, you got lots of different things that you see commonly today. And the notion of casting dread return for your answer to a hate card really kind of went out the window about a year ago. So that's why I think Angel of Despair has stopped seeing top eights. Dredge decks have changed in their tactics. And this notion of taking your anti-hate out of the graveyard basically went by the wayside. I don't think Ashen Rider changes that metric at all. Yeah, I think you're probably right. If at some point it becomes fashionable or practical to dread return for your answer to hate cards, then clearly Ashen Rider would be the card in that role. And Angel of Despair will probably never see play in Vintage ever again. Yeah. It's also worth noting, though, this card can exiles, whereas Angel of Despair just destroys. So it not only hits two cards, but it also has a better effect on that card. Absolutely. That is not trivial. We've seen plenty of ways and situations in which a dredge player would remove, quote-unquote, remove a hate card only to have it come back through regrowth or Yawgmoth's Will or some other such or thing. Goblin Welder. Goblin Welder, sure. Yeah. So you're completely right that that is a very relevant impact. And if Angel of Despair were common still today, this card would have a major impact on certain interactions. Goblin Welder as a way to retrieve a destroyed Grafdigger's Cage, for example, would go by the wayside. But that's simply not happening as an interaction with Angel of Despair these days. So I'm comfortable labeling this card as vintage playable, but saying that it won't be played. How many Angel Despairs appeared in Top 8 this year? This year? You know? None. The last one was in June of 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, well, then I'm with you as zero. Yeah. If something were to change, it would have to be pretty dramatic by today's standards because Craftigger's Cage and, and its ilk have really changed the metrics by which Dredge fights its hate cards. So I'm calling zero. I'm with you. Next is Hero's Downfall. And Steve, I bring this up because I think there's something going on here that deserves a note. Hero's Downfall is one black black instant. Destroy target creature or planeswalker. And for those of you who've been playing Magic for the last few years, you will note that this is basically Dreadbore in a mono-colored uh, incarnation. It still suffers from the two designated mana that Dreadbore does, and Dreadbore has basically seen no play. But the fact this is a single color and an instant, and the fact that Planeswalkers continue to get increasingly relevant in Vintage, are the two reasons why I think this, desar- this card at least deserves some discussion. The, ma- the mana cost of one black black is, I think, on the outskirts of vintage playability. Steve, can you think of a card at that specific mana cost that's seen play in the last couple of years? There really aren't any. A black black, another black black one card is Liliana the Veil, which sees lots of play, at least a good amount. Good example, yes. More restrictive cards like Necropotence see play. Yeah. Necropotence is a pretty specific example. Yeah, I mean, all those card, all the cards that that casting costs, are, like Doomsday, are cast with Necropotence, or I'm sorry, with Dark Ritual, or with Gush. Very Macabre may have seen playing in the last couple of years. Yeah, but that wouldn't be for its ability to go onto the stack. <laughs> so my point in bringing up Hero's Downfall is that it's more of an acknowledgement of a metagame shift. An instant for three mana that can kill Dark Confidant, and Jace the Mind Sculptor, and Tezzeret, and, and Vendillion Click, and Tezzeret. <laughs> I said it twice because there are two different Tezzerets that see play. And whatever future Planeswalker might come down, I think is increasingly relevant. And I also believe that this 
form, this one black black instant is probably more likely to be the one that players go to over Dreadbore's Rakdos sorcery speed. All of that having been said, I don't think the conditions are right today. But I wouldn't be surprised if a year or two from now we started to see Heroes Downfall appear because more and more planeswalkers or more and more creatures are just the defining characteristics of certain decks. I take your point that if we see more planeswalker printings that are playable and vintage, this card's value goes up. But in the meantime, Lightning Bolt does everything both of these cards really you want them to do. Yeah, and you know what? I think it's not the turning point, but my counterpoint to that would be Karn. Silver Golem. Not Silver Golem, but Karn the Planeswalker, I mean. It's interesting. You know, both Jace and, and, and Lodestone Golem really made Lightning Bolt playable. Mm-hmm. Lightning Bolt is playable because, in large part, in no small measure, because of the huge rise of Planeswalkers in the format, and Jace in particular. Mm-hmm. Being able to hit a Planeswalker is just so relevant that it, it's actually made Lightning Bolt. For, Lightning Bolt didn't used to actually be vintage playable. It became vintage playable since, since that point. You're completely right. And for as long as the Planeswalkers in the format can be addressed with Lightning Bolt, you're almost certainly correct that they will be addressed with Lightning Bolt and creatures, of course. But I think the window is there for a dedicated removal spell that ignores the number of loyalty counters on a Planeswalker. Anyway, I don't think that time is now. I don't think we need to go much further with this. I am predicting zero copies at the moment. I assume you are as well. Yes. It is worth noting, however, that there was one top eight made by Dreadbore in the main deck even uh, last November. So the window's open, but I don't think it's going to happen now. Yeah, this card is too expensive. All right, Steve, we touched on heroic as a mechanic and our general opinions of it earlier in the show, but there are two examples that I think we should at least touch on to demonstrate in a little more specifics. The first is Triton Fortune Hunter, and this is the, the Grey Ogre, maybe Ophidian model for this ability. It's a creature merfolk soldier for two blue heroic. Whenever you cast a spell that targets Triton Fortune Hunter, draw a card. It's 2-2. Steve, in terms of evaluating heroic, it doesn't get much more simpler or direct than draw a card. Yep. If you, if an effect was worth doing, draw a card is where it would be at in Vintage. Yes. Yeah, so what you're looking for here is something like Grape Shot, something that can target this a bunch of times with one efficient card. The pro- Grape Shot won't do it because the most Grape Shot can do is draw two cards off of this. But if there's is there something like that that can give us a boost that has Storm that we can use as a draw engine? Well, I'd have to back up and say that's not entirely correct on Grape Shot, though. You could target this more than two times with a grape shot. It does not require that the spell resolve. Oh. It's only when you cast a yeah, spell that targets. So you could draw like like five or six cards all with grape shot off this. Yes. If you felt like storming up a couple times with grape shot with one of these in play, sure. That's very exciting, actually. The, it could be we finally manufactured our storm draw spell that we've wanted all along. But the simple truth is, is we've talked about lots of different ways in the past, lots of different cards to synergize with Storm, your Niv-Magus Elemental, and and most of all of those cards, Young Pyromancer notwithstanding, don't actually manifest in any kind of real way. Yep. Yep. And this one being a three-mana setup spell that is otherwise pretty useless, I don't think it's going to change that pattern. That's probably true, but th- but that said... Um... You know, the ability to draw a ton of cards for just five mana is not not a trivial thing. How many cards would you need to draw off of that for you to consider it worthwhile? It's it's more than four. Oh. That much is pretty clear. Yeah, I so, think it's probably more than four. And um, and even at five mana for five cards is not vintage well, playable. I think Grape Shot is a is a, a vintage playable card right now. 
It's showing up in young young Americans. It is a definitely a playable card. There are just enough one toughness creatures in the format, and it's a storm kill, not with uh, none, uh, as well. Uh, I would agree with that. I think grape shot yeah. is playable. I think so. If you put this into play, let's say on turn two, you could probably generate five storm with a gush and grape shot fairly easily. And if you had a skull clamp on this, then you draw even more cards. I I think you could make it work in theory. I think there's an engine there. Such a deck would in, almost certainly include Young Pyromancer and a lot of the other That's things that are in the existing Gush-based yeah. Pyromancer decks. Yeah. I, the problem is you're not going to be you're probably not going to want four Grape Shot to make it consistent. I mean, I think you could you could probably make it worthwhile in a theoretical matter, but you do you really want a deck with four Grape Shot? Maybe you do. Maybe this goes into a. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this, it goes into that. Maybe this looks more like the empty gush decks from last year. Yeah. The heavily featured three to four main deck empty the Warrens, and we're intending to basically empty on turn one for some number between five and ten. Yes. I think if you can, you can probably draw five cards off this on turn three fairly reliably. I don't know if that's good enough, but it sounds like it should be. Maybe there's something we're missing in terms of some kind of self-propagating pattern. In terms yeah. of, because if you draw five cards, but one of those five cards is another Triton Fortune Hunter, right? <laughs> you don't want to just keep propagating that same loop. You need to go somewhere with that. Yeah. It's not clear where you go with that. <laughs> I think it is possible to put together an engine. It might end up looking a little more like well, Suicide Virus in the long run. Yeah, it might actually be that you just put the Niv Magus elemental combo in there. Because with Flusterstorm, you could remove extra. Grape Shot has, has strong value with Niv Magus. You can clear oh. out some. I like what you're. I like what you're going with that. You get the benefit of the some... Triton Fortune Hunter and the Nivmegas Elemental, and they both live through it too. Yes. Well, that's there's some value in that. I can see that. That way, you could repeatedly grape shot this card if you could build sufficient storm. But you could it would live through those effects if you had yes. them both in play. Exactly. So maybe you could actually maybe that's... you could actually kill someone in two swings that way, where ten storm with grape shot would never have done it by itself. Yeah, yeah, you could put five all five tokens and just power them all onto the Nimagus, and you have a huge hand at the end of all of that. <laughs> I think it's like it's, it's like gain ten power, draw five cards. It sounds like an awful lot of work to me, but the pieces are there to have such a thing occur. Yeah. Whether or not it's good enough, I do not feel that it is. I might put that together. <laughs> for Grapeshot, for Flusterstorm, for this guy, for Nimagus. See where that goes with Gush. Why not? Let's we add in the next card on our list since it dovetails with this concept a great deal, and that's a Crow and Crusader. They are red. Creature, human, soldier, heroic. Whenever you cast a spell that targets a Crow and Crusader, put a 1-1 red soldier creature token with haste onto the battlefield. 1-1. And the haste cannot be understated there, I don't think. No, that's true. Haste is really good. I I think that this falls in the same category as the very first heroic card we reviewed, Mm -hmm. which is um, the clone. You know, just the the targeting is so much more difficult than just playing spells such as Young Pyromancer. So I I think... um, Generating card, virtual card advantage with tokens is great, but it's not nearly as good as just drawing drawing new cards. I think once you get past Grape Shot in this theoretical deck or this concept, it also becomes exceedingly difficult to find the other cards you would want. The Wisp mm-hmm. spells from Shadowmoor come to mind. 
Cerulean Wisps, target creature becomes blue until end of turn, untap that creature, draw a card. Or Crimson Wisps, target creature becomes red and gains haste until end of turn, draw a card. Simple ways that you can just target your guys, and the net result is it's transparent from a card advantage standpoint. Mm-hmm. It seems to have some value in a context like this. Yeah, I just don't know if it's good enough to generate tokens. It would be much better on something like the Fortune Hunter. I see your point. Wouldn't, would you put those cards in the same deck, though, the theoretical deck you're talking about with Niv-Magus Elemental? Blue-Red Storm that's generating tokens, pumping the Niv-Magus. Yeah, the Wisp is blue. Well, there's one in each color. It, it was a cycle. There was one for each color. The red, and, the, But they're all the, basically the same. It has some trivial impact on target creature, and then you draw a card. The, the effect is not really relevant. The blue one untaps... The red one gives it haste, which is not irrelevant, not to mention it. But what I'm yeah. thinking of is the key is the interaction with the, these two heroic creatures. Cerulean Wisp would draw two cards is what you're saying. Yes, they would all draw two cards off, off the Fortune Hunter because they all have that trivial effect and then draw a card. But if you get either of these heroic creatures plus the Niv-Magus Elemental, as you said, then you, you can you can pick and choose. If you just have the Crusader and the Niv-Magus, then you can cast Wisps or whatever other spell and just attack them. You can eat the spell for counters on the Niv-Magus if you want, or just draw the cards, whichever is more appropriate. But then once you get to the Grapeshot range, then you get all the upside. You Grapeshot this Crusader for 5, eat all the, t- the copies on the stack with the Niv-Magus, and you're swinging for 10, at least. Mm-hmm. Conversely, with the Fortune Hunter, you're drawing 5 cards and swinging for however much that would be. I don't know. It's it's interesting that you've gone this far with this. I didn't expect this to manifest this much discussion it still doesn't sound like it's going anywhere to me, but at least in theory, it's there. The shell is there in the same way that something like Suicide Virus is or something like Empty Gush is. Empty Gush yeah. is a deck that's filled with much higher quality cards, of course, but there's at least a possibility for an engine here, I think, with these two examples. Well, that having been said, I think for Triton Fortune Hunter and Ekron Crusader, I'm still predicting zero top eight appearances. Yeah, I'm going to predict zero. Yeah. Let's move on to Anger of the Gods. Red, red, one. Sorcery, Anger of the Gods, deals three damage to each creature. If a creature dealt damage this way would die this turn, exile it instead. We talked about it in our last set review vis-a-vis Mindsparker about the red, red, one casting cost. That is a tough one in Vintage. It's not unheard of in the history of the format, but it's it's not very common today. Can you pause for a second? Yes. Okay, go. Go, go ahead, Ken. Oh. The only card that's even remotely played recently at this mana cost is Volcanic Fallout, which is pretty rare uh, anti-creature card in deck. Anti-Pyromancer card. Anti-Pyromancer card, yeah. Which, now that you mention it, means it might actually come back a little bit, Volcanic Fallout. But Landstill or Grixis-style decks have had that in their main deck or sideboard occasionally. But it's definitely one of the rarer in terms of fringe vintage castability. That having been said, Fire Spout is a very similar card to this and has been a little more common, six top eights this year, but it is much easier to cast Fire Spout off of a single red, typically. Right, but Volcanic Fallout is uncounterable. Right. But let's not diminish the notion of exiling the creatures. So returning creatures is not uncommon in Vintage these days, either via Yawgmoth's Will in a Grixis or Pyromancer-style deck, or via Goblin Welder in a Workshop deck, or... Obviously, everything in Dredge comes back. So this notion of exiling is, I don't think it's to be underestimated. If you were to play against a Welder deck, then exiling their various creatures early in the game, if you could manage to resolve it, would mean that those creatures wouldn't come back later on. 
Against Dredge, if you can catch uh, Bloodgast, for example, that's really the only one you would catch with reliability, then it wouldn't ever come back. So that's something. This spell has a little bit of advantage over Fire Spot against Dredge. Against decks like Noble Fish, they're not bringing their creatures back very much. Bomberman would... Humans. Bomberman would replay some things off Yawgmoth's Will. Humans, does humans bring their creatures back? I don't think it would. So the Exile benefit seems to really only manifest against Goblin Welder and heavily against Dredge. The castability, though, comes into play in many, many matchups. And also, when you look at comparing this mana cost to Volcanic Fallout, the uncounterability obviously would be Forefront, especially against something like Noble Fish, or if you're trying to use it against Pyromancer. You know, it's interesting, the complex systems of metagames and set releases coming out the way they do. If it wasn't for Young Pyromancer, this card might actually be better. <laughs> but the simple fact is is that those Young Pyromancer decks are also riddled with your Fluster Storms and other counter spells. So if you wanted to enter that one card, Volcanic Fallout's probably superior at this mana cost. I don't know, Steve. The more I think about it, I think between Fallout and Fire Spout, there appears to be very little place for Anger of the Gods. I wouldn't be bringing in a three-mana removal spell against Dredge just because it happens to exile their Bloodgasts. Yeah. Volcanic Fallout also, now that I think about it, it's probably superior against Dredge due to the hasting factor of Ash, uh, Flamekin Zealot. And being an instant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think Volcanic Fallout is just better than this card in the in, in the format as it is currently constituted. And, and to the extent that that sees play suggests this probably won't. Or that exists, this probably won't. Although it does have a pretty profound you know amount of damage. In Vintage, often 19 damage might as well be one. <laughs> That's a good point. So the upside of Anger of the Gods, of course, is the three damage removing Lodestone Golem. Volcanic Fallout basically need not apply against Lodestone Golem. That is true. But a three-mana answer to just do three damage is pretty weak on the scale of red cards that are good against workshops. Yeah. So Volcanic Fallout's not really applicable there anyway. Next, let's talk about Read the Bones. Sorcery, two, black, scry two, then draw two cards. You lose two life. Starting with the casting cost, this costs the same as Yawgmoth's Will, pretty clearly playable. Clearly playable. Yep. <laughs> so, so, yeah, sorceries at this mana cost definitely see play. And sorceries with similar effects to this in this color also see play. Knight's Whisper has made top eights a couple of times this year and in years past. Knight's Whisper is the obvious point of comparison because this is almost identical to Knight's Whisper with one small caveat. Well, you could see four cards here if you wanted. Exactly. This has Scry 2. And this really, I think, brings into direct focus the question we asked at the outset, which is, what is the value of Scry? And another way of looking at that is, what is the mana cost of Scry? You know, if if the mana cost of Scry seems to be maybe one colorless, well, this gives you two Scry for one colorless. So the question is, is that good enough of a bonus to justify running this over a Knight's Whisper? Is this better than Knight's Whisper? Is it worse than Knight's Whisper? What do you think, Kevin? I think that there's one other aspect to the comparison that factors into my thought process, and that is you're not just paying one mana for Scry here. You're paying for Scry right before you draw cards. Yes, which is better than afterwards. <laughs> That's right. Better than afterwards, but so, also just but, better than Scry so to begin with. I think that, well, let me just interject. The card that really shows the value of that is comparison, comparing Preordain to Serum Visions. Absolutely. Because they do it in exact opposite order. Absolutely. <laughs> and Serum Visions is, can't, can't hold a candle to Preordain in Vintage. Because of that, because of that simple sequencing and ordering, that's it. Exactly. So I think that it's not a direct comparison of the additional colorless mana to the scry here. It, it's definitely valid, but the the order of events plus the, just the simple nature of the card 
means that you're getting more than just an additional mana's worth of, or sorry, you're getting more than just two scries worth of value baked in here. Yeah. You're di- you're directly influencing which cards you're going to see which cards you might draw. Exactly. And so, it, so the notion of seeing two cards and then drawing two cards is does definitely amp up the value of the scry. Yes, because you could you could potentially see four, and you and, and and I mean like cards like opt or whatever, you generally know whether you want the card or not. So yeah, adding scry right before a draw is has a similar impact to how good brainstorm is in vintage, for example, where in brainstorm's case you don't get three cards, but you get right. access to three cards, yes. and having just the right card for the right situation in vintage is quite powerful. So yeah, putting a card on, putting two cards in the bottom and then drawing two, or putting a card in the bottom and drawing two is that the latter is seeing three cards yeah it's it becomes very close to thirst for knowledge so by that comparison i think this is very tempting but man adding one mana at the very low very lowest points in the curve is so strong and the difference between two and three is in vintage frequently the difference between turn one and turn two and the fact that you can just launch a Knight's Whisper on turn one with a fetch land and a mox is so much more synergistic with the rest of the plan of whatever deck you're playing that this card plays a very different role. Seeing more cards, it's more like you're more apt to be digging for an answer or completing a combo as opposed to just adding incremental card advantage, which Knight's Whisper typically does. I think this is very close to just saying draw three cards. Very close. Yeah. I think you're right. The draw three cards aspect causes me to compare this card to compulsive research, which we've talked about as something of a benchmark for other comparisons in the past and never quite is good enough for play in vintage. They're different cards, but I think this would fill a very similar role. And the three mana is just just slightly too much to justify only netting two cards out of the deal. What were the card? What's the card that we talked about in our last set review? That was the three casting cost draw spell. That would be glimpse the future, which we predicted accurately. No, uh, and that's just the strategic planning, right? That's just yeah. Look at the top three cards of your library. Put one in your hand. So the rest in your graveyard. Compulsive research draws three, and you have to discard a land or two if you don't discard a land. Right. I think this is better than compulsive research. Oh, I agree. I think it is better than compulsive research. But I, I think it's. I think it's. It's. See, I. I want to say more than marginally better. <laughs> Well, that's fair. I think that is a fair statement, and I would agree. It's not blue, so it suffers from its mana cost a little bit. There's nothing, obviously, control decks play black these days. But the fact that Compulsive Research is blue means casting it off of a basic island is slightly more tenable. Well, this card basically means you're going to draw the best two of your top four cards in most cases. In most cases, yes. That's pretty insane. <laughs> I mean, that might as well be draw four, discard two. <laughs> It's not. Qu- it's not quite that good. Not not quite, but it's you know the, the other thing. Uh, let me ask you something, Kevin, just to sort of put this in perspective. Would this card be better or worse if it was rephrased as follows? And if it would be better, how would it be better? If it said scry one, draw two cards, then scry one. I believe it would be worse. The scry beforehand is significantly better than scry after. Wow. Why do you say wow? I thought that we were in agreement. No, I, I think I agree with you. Um, the thing is, the, the, the scry one, then scry, then draw two, then scry one, you still see four cards, but you potentially get to the fifth card faster. You potentially get to another card faster. So you potentially dig deeper, but you don't actually see the next card immediately. Right? Is that right? Yes. You can't actually draw the fourth card. You see it, but you can't draw it. 
Right. So you can only draw one of the top three. Uh, yeah. I. This card, you you can literally draw the fourth card down. Yeah. That's that's very powerful. It is. What's the card that people are using that has the flashback that's like that that has some people tried in the new control slaver? Oh, I think you're talking about alchemy, forbidden alchemy. Yeah. What does that do again? That's two blue instant. Look at the top four cards of your library. Put one of them into your hand and the rest in your graveyard with flashback of seven. I feel like this card is better than that. Yes, I think you're and I right. Feel like I think Forbidden Alchemy has been in top eight. Yes, Forbidden Alchemy did make one top eight this year. Back in April, Jacob Corey was playing two of them in a Control Slaver build out in Berkeley, your neck of the woods. Yeah, I think this card is better than Forbidden Alchemy, and I think it's much so. I I, I think this card might might be playable. It might be really good. It's really pushing the line, though. One of the reasons why people were so excited by Forbidden Alchemy is the instant speed. I My second turn with a control deck and my third turn when I don't draw a mox, very uncomfortable tapping out. Are you thinking about the Grixis control for this? You know, I'm not sure. I, I'm I'm thinking this card has some... I mean, just digging four cards is, is quite significant. I'm trying to think of what other sorcery speed draw spells have seen play in Vintage recently. They, the instants do seem to predominate. Well, Night's Whisper is obviously the comparison, and Grixis yeah. Control hasn't adopted that. Jace is obviously another comparison. Naturally. But Jace has so much other upside. I, I really feel oh, like Knight's Whisper. Sure. The the fact that Grixis Control has not adopted Knight's Whisper should direct you to the operative conflict. Yeah, this card always generates card advantage, and it also generates always will generate virtual card advantage. So that's, that's fair. The, the virtual card advantage is a feature that Knight's Whisper doesn't have. If you, for example, Knight's Whisper into your Blightsteel Colossus, you're just stuck with it. Yeah, yeah. So getting past the situational cards is definitely an advantage to scry to than draw. <laughs> you think about it, this card is actually better in Oath because you don't will never draw the Oath creatures. Good point. Very good point. Well, not never, but you are less likely to. Right. I. Um, yeah, you're right. The scry, in addition to that, you get to put aside unneeded copies of Oath of Druids, too. Oath of Druids being traditionally the deck that has the most redundant or situationally awful cards. Yeah, I'm really captivated by this card. I, I don't really want to make a hard prediction on it. I'll, I will, but I um, I feel like this is in this is in that space of vintage playability, and it's just such an unusual card. It's hard to hard to gauge. Um, but I'm really fascinated to see where it goes. But, I mean, seeing four cards deep is is tremendous, and then actually generating card advantage and virtual card advantage on top of that is great. I think this is a step up of Forbidden Alchemy. I think it's better than certainly better than Compulsive Research. It just the you know is it is it I mean Knight's Whisper does is is clearly vintage playable. Is that if this card is better than Knight's Whisper, and I think it may be, then it's at least vintage playable. The question is, will it see play? Well, I think it's the time has come to put our numbers next to it. What do you think? I think you're, you're, you're going to be zero, right? Yeah, I'm going to be zero. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say two. Okay. Well, I think this is just one of those cases where you and I see things slightly differently. I am still, I agree with all your assessments about how valuable the various effects of this card and the synergy in deck construction and play factor in. I just feel like the three mana sorcery is not where people are going to end up. Well, I think I think that's right, but I also think that people aren't going to be attracted to this card in ways they would other, otherwise be if it was a blue spell or an instant. Um, but I do think this I just this card just has so much potential. I don't want to write it off as a zero. I think that's fair. I think your assessment and your description of things causes me to evaluate a little more closely. I would initially have just said that this is a three mana Knight's Whisper and not worth the the extra mana. 
but your assessment of how the value of seeing four cards down has changed my mind about it, that being an inappropriate, I think, evaluation. Yeah. I still think people aren't going to play it. Yeah, it just gets very close to just saying draw three cards, you know. In a sense, it does. I mean, you know, if you're, t- for example, if your top three cards, let's say it's like turn three or four, and your top two cards have one or two lands in them, you've just drawn, you know, you've just drawn three cards, just like you would put throw a land in a fact pile that you are in a fact in a fact pile that you don't care if your opponent has, you know. Yeah, no, you're completely right. And Blightsteel Colossus is the poster child for that. If Blightsteel's on yeah. top of your deck then put him on bottom and draw two cards is is almost as good as draw three cards in a lot of contexts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm with you there. Well, we'll see. I, I would I would not be upset about being wrong on that one. This is one of the better and more interesting cards in this set. Let's move on to one Mist Cutter Hydra. This is a fun one. Creature Hydra. Mana cost is XG. Mist Cutter Hydra can't be countered. Haste. Protection from blue. Mist Cutter Hydra enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it, and it is natively zero zero. This is obviously the anti J spell that they printed. They, the I imagine that in the R and D database, this is probably called Jace Cutter Hydra. <laughs> <laughs> Jace Killer Hydra. Yeah, you can't get much more. I mean, the Skylasher the, that we reviewed in the recent set was very similar in this line and it's hate for Delver of Secrets. So this is just another one in the long line of green trying to play catch up to blue in terms of, hey, I want to be better than you in Constructed Magic or better than a particular blue card in Constructed Magic. So let's lay it out for our audience here. Obviously the casting cost is variable, but green mana is played in a number of cards. Green plus one is played in a number of cards and mostly creatures. Yeah. Green plus two. Is it two two? I know, but is there a spell that is played at that mana cost? I suppose seed cross and grip seeds of innocence at GG one is similar enough. Well, 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 one of the reasons that I mean, it's yeah, I think this is an important exercise, but we should also just add the caveat that one of the things that constrains spells is counter magic. This can't be countered, so that changes that equation somewhat. Assuming that your opponent has resolved their Jace and brainstormed with it, you need to play this guy at probably more than two mana to be effective. Yeah, so it's a four mana spell. I, I don't necessarily agree, though. I think you can play this guy at three mana as a 2-2 two, two and kill Jace next turn, and it's still worthwhile to do so. And Jace can't answer him in the meantime, barring brainstorming into a lightning bolt, of course. So it's a... There's an asterisk next to that. But Jace by himself can't answer this card no matter what he wants to do. But the fact that he's scalable means that this card is a lot better. This card is 2 mana 2-2, two, two, 3 mana... Sorry, 2 mana 1-1, one, one, 3 mana 2-2. Two, two. So it's 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 a 1-1, one, one, a 2-2, two, two, uh, it's a bear, a gray ogre, and a hill giant. Let's not... Let's not miss the fact that this card would frequently be played in a deck with Noble Hierarch, and Noble Hierarch effectively adds two to his power. Does Noble Hierarch still see play in Vintage? Isn't it disappeared? No. Noble Noble Fish is still a thing. I believe any deck that featured Miscutter Hydra would is highly likely to have Noble Hierarch in it. And a turn one Noble Hierarch means a turn two Mistcutter Hydra at three converted mana, so a two-two. But that Mistcutter Hydra attacks the next turn as a 3-3, thanks to the Hierarch. So a turn you know turn 1 Hierarch, turn 2 Hydra kills Jace starting on turn 3. Oh, 
I completely forgot this card has haste. Yeah. That, hi- that Hydra kills Jace on turn two if you let off with a Noble Hierarch. Yeah. And it does it a turn later if you let off with Deathrite Shaman. So in the sort of deck that would want a hasty pro-blue Hydra answer to Jace, it's most likely better than even what its base stats would indicate, thanks to the mana elves that do see play in Vintage. Yeah. I'm, I really am not convinced. As an answer to just Jace, this guy is pretty aggressively darn good as an answer to anything else in the format it's abysmal it's terrible against workshops where you're overpaying for the the right sized body and none of its effects matter can't be countered haste pro blue nope none of that need apply it's pretty much irrelevant to get to dredge it would be just a warm body against them and it's overcosted at that and against most of the other creatures in the format in general against your goifs and your thalias and stuff you're paying too much now, the notion that you could pump this guy up to a 4-4 four, four, or a 5-5 five, five in the mid to late game is relevant in, in other creature matchups, but you wouldn't, boy, he would probably still be the weakest creature in your deck in those kind of contexts. Yeah. Or your opponent's going to save their plows for him or what have you. I suppose against Noble Fish, if you're a green X, green white beats deck against Noble Fish, the fact that they can't force this guy would mean he would be pretty relevant. He'd be a beefy body. If you cast him for four mana on turn three or four, and he swung as a 5-5 five, five, yeah. even, well, that would that would matter. There is one other application. This card is very good against land still. If you just wait and then build up a huge mana base and play this, what are they going to do? Ah, that's a fair point. What they're going to do is engineer to explode him at one. There you go. <laughs> but yes, you could get a significant hit in, and they wouldn't, unless they had the explosives out, they wouldn't be able to do much about it the turn it came down. Well, they could chump. They could chump with a factory, yeah. Yeah, so if they've got factory plus crucible going, you're in trouble no matter what. But yeah, you could get a sizable hit in. In fact, against Landstill, in that situation, if you caught them off guard, you could get super lucky and kill a Jace with it. So yes. it's going to have that function against Landstill pretty effectively. I just want to mention that this card would have been an excellent, an excellent win condition in the old Channel Fireball decks. Oh, that's funny. I like it. Can't be countered at all. Better than Kervix Torch. But no. those that environment, though, featured lots of creatures to chump block this with. And you could plow it. Yeah. But, hey, they're giving you all the life back in the process. Exactly. <laughs> so you can go off again the next day. Exactly. <laughs> that's quite um, funny. Yeah, I think there you can manufacture scenarios where this card is a pretty good answer to Jace and better than many existing creatures because they can't bounce him and you can't counter him. So he might actually be better than, say, a Tarmogoyf that would ostensibly be higher power and toughness for the casting costs but would just get bounced or countered. Yeah, I can see where you're going with that. I still don't think anyone's going to conclude that this is the, the right way to go, though. This card is missing synergy with humans-based decks. Hydra is not a creature type that really gets you anywhere in Vintage in terms of synergy. Mm-hmm. No, I would predict zero copies here. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> this is difficult to say. I'm, uh. I am sympathetic to your plight. This is like me with Chandra Pyromaster. I don't think it's good enough to be omnipresent in the format or be any kind of staple, but there are also players out there who will try just about anything. So That's what I'm concerned about. Yeah. I'm going to say zero. Okay. Steve, I think we should ratchet up our interest in this set with one Ashiok Nightmare Weaver. Mm-hmm. Ashiok is a demure of sorts, Planeswalker. One blue-black Planeswalker Ashiok, plus two. Exile the top three cards of target opponent's library, minus X, 
put a creature card with converted mana cost X, exiled with Ashiok Nightmare Weaver, onto the battlefield under your control. That creature is a nightmare in addition to its other types. Minus 10, exile all cards from all opponents' hands and graveyards. Ashiok starts with three loyalty. Why doesn't it say X? Um, why doesn't it say put a creature card with converted mana cost X exiled by Ashiok Nightmare Weaver? I think that's the floral spasm effect. Ashiok's right. not choosing the card to exile or choose. You are. You are with it. I got right. you. Well, so this card has a very natural sort of progression. You exile. The first ability is you exile three cards from your opponent's library, which has, I think, value, more value than you probably. I mean, we've discussed this before. I have more affinity for removing, exiling a card than you do. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is that in Vintage, first of all, it's unlikely that you've just exiled a creature um, that you can then animate. So you're going to have to add, just basically mill your opponent until you find a creature. And even then, it's probably not going to be good enough to reanimate. So Why do you say that it's probably not going to be good enough? Okay, so let's say you activate this and you don't hit a creature. Right. Or let's say you do hit a creature and it's Blightsteel Colossus. You can't even use this. <laughs> Right, but that's only but, one card in said opponent's deck. Yeah, unlikely. Yeah. So, um, but so you, you let's say you act, the second time you activate this, you hit you hit either a Pyromancer or a Bob. Right. Then it, you can't even play it until the next turn, and Bob is just so much worse there because that's a, like a turn five Bob or something. Yeah. So I don't I don't think this has a lot of value. <laughs> Exiling three cards is significantly more than the that what we've discussed in the past with regard to Night Vale Spectre. When we had yeah. the, our biggest discussion about the value of that effect, we were talking about yeah. that, that, but, that card. But in each of our discussions of Planeswalkers, we've analyzed the independent value of each of these abilities. Naturally. The first ability here is good. The second is not. That's the problem. And you can't even activate the second ability until you've activated the first yeah. at least once, unlike exactly. most Planeswalkers. Exactly. Which is really Look at Landstill. That'll never be activated. <laughs> well, the simple fact is, is that this, car, this Planeswalker can't protect itself. Yes. I mean, not for at least two turns. And that's a serious liability in a format that features two mana creatures in nearly every deck, within reason. I mean, this Planeswalker will be threatened by your opponent's creatures with pretty regular, in pretty much every matchup in the format. And in some cases, lethally so. In the case of Workshops, of course. In the case of Noblefish, this card won't be able to survive an attack. So it's basically uncastable against Dredge, Workshops, Fish... Many other decks. It's it's pretty much uncastable. Yeah. The only time this would be decent is in some kind of control mirror where neither where your opponent hasn't either hasn't resolved a creature to threaten it immediately, or you have an, a creature of similar size and you can just trade on defense if you need to. In which case, you could build up incremental card advantage such that you get you push over the top in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, I just But that's four that's turns later. This card is not likely to hit an, a creature quite enough in an environment where people don't play a lot of creatures. That's right. Even though we talk all the time about how important creatures are to vintage, if you look at the average say Grixis control or Bomberman list, they're like they're like 10 creatures and, and like nine creatures or like, you know, 8 to 10 creatures at most. Yes, you will frequently you know, like, you, go two or more activations of Ashiok without finding a yes. creature, and that's unacceptable. Yeah. I don't think we need to waste a lot of time on this. I'm predicting zero. Okay. I'm predicting zero as well. This is one of those cards I really do expect some people to test, and I think that it's just not reliable enough. Next on our list is an interesting one. <laughs> Daxos of Melitus. Now, this one's going to take me a minute to read. Excuse me. Legendary creature, human soldier, for one white-blue. 
Daxos of Melitus can't be blocked by creatures with power 3 or greater. Whenever Daxos of Melitus deals combat damage to a player, exile the top card of that player's library. You gain life equal to that card's converted mana cost. Until end of turn, you may cast that card, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast it 2-2. Now that's a mouthful, and they grafted on the abilities of a handful of different creatures, historically speaking. Yes. This is just the next in line of a long line of the Ophidian-style creatures. Yes. Now, Steve, when we talked about, and we already alluded to it in this show, Night Vale Spectre, yes. exiling a card at a time has a, a nominal uh, benefit in the format. It's nominally disruptive, that I should say. Yes. But this card has another sort of evasion. It's hard to block with larger creatures. Yep, it's not exactly fear, but it's, it's actually better than fear. Yeah, and also it's much easier now for you to make use of the cards that you would exile vis-a-vis yes. Night Vale Spectre. I, I really like this element that they've grafted in the several cards in the set, which new line, which I've never seen before, and I think it's new to magic, correct me if I'm wrong, that you may cast this card and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color. Is that, that line new? This card has like a, a Legends-level amount of text. It really does. It's kind of awesome in that regard. It's a nice throwback. <laughs> There are five existing cards that have the phrase, you may spend mana, dot, dot, dot. Celestial Dawn, False Dawn, North Star, Sunglasses of Urza, and Quicksilver Elemental. Four of those are just designed to make it easier for you to cast random cards out of your deck or what have you. Quicksilver Elemental is actually maybe the closest to this card, but that's only an ability level thing, not casting your opponent's spells. So this notion of spending mana to cast your opponent's spells is brand new, basically. Yeah, that's my thought. This is just absolutely... I love that. I love that. It makes it a lot easier to do this sort of thing. Um, You know, in the past, though, there have been cards like Spelljack, where I think you can play them for free. That's right. Or did they... Yeah. You play them without paying their mana cost, right? They've really greased the wheels of this ability as much as they maybe can. (laughs) (laughs) Aside from making the spells free, but allowing you to play your opponent's cards is the easiest it can possibly be here. So, I mean, this is sort of a weird thing because it's a fitting that put, it puts the card directly in your hand and so you can decide. This is card advantage, but it's, it's not, it, it's sort of slicing it kind of thin, right. you know, in terms of how you can actually use the card advantage. The card <laughs> because is, it doesn't, the card is permanently exiled. So the disruptive factor, yeah. as much as it is, is permanent, but you can only play the spell if you want to until the end of the turn. Yeah, which is not not true of Psychic Intrusion. Psychic Intrusion, which we're going to talk about, says you may cast the card as long as it remains exiled, which is a very unusual um, addendum. We haven't actually seen that. I don't think we've seen that. Usually it's just you have to do it until the turn. Um, I, I think there have been a few examples of as long as it remains exiled. Yeah, Th- that may be the case, but not on a card quite like that. I think. No. So... In the history of vintage, Ophidian-style creatures are heavily playable. Yeah, so let's just... So this is functionally unblockable, unless your opponent has, like, Young Pyromancer, and they've generated tokens. Um, you know, what... But there, but we have had Ophidians that are, are unblockable because they have Island Walk or whatever. Uh, this, though, can't be blocked even by workshops unless, again, they, like, cracked a worm coil engine or something. Um, Actually, the only workshop creatures that see play today that could block this, I think, are Metalworker, which would die, and... 
revoker, which would trade. I'm, I'm almost certainly missing something, but generally speaking, everything else is bigger. Your point is well taken, though, that there aren't many workshop creatures that can even block this. Most of the control-type creatures, the two mana guys, will be able to block yeah. this. Your, your yeah, Bob, Pyromancer, Snapcaster, those guys can, but they all trade with it. So generally speaking, it's going to be a decent trade for you, uh, except for Snapcaster. Yeah. But you would gladly trade this for a Bob, I think. And in many situations, you'd gladly trade it for a Pyromancer. Yeah. But in a lot of cases, in a lot of matchups, this will be functionally unblockable. So why don't you just briefly go through the opinions of type of vintage? You've done a good job researching. Well, for the last several years, you're looking at Night Vale Spectre, Augury Adept, Cold Eye Selkie, which still sees a lot of play, Demir Cut Purse, which we've used as a benchmark in a lot of cases, Scroll Thief, Shadow Mage Infiltrator, Steel of Secrets, Thada Adele, Ninja the Deep Hours. Yeah. Now those that list have seen played to varying degrees and in varying periods of time. And the most apt current example is probably the Cold Eyed Selkie, as you called out earlier. Yes. He's hard to block. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And there's also the upside of possibly drawing additional cards with eggs. Uh, sorry, with Exalted. Exalted. Yeah. So that's a pretty different comparison there. But the Daxos has other upsides, those being life gain and yep. drawing cards of your opponent's deck and disrupting their deck to some degree. Yep. It's really hard to quantify those and make those direct comparisons. I agree. It really, really is. When it, we were talking about Night Vale Spectre, I was much more confident in I mean, thinking that effect was minimal, even though Night Vale Spectre did see some top eight appearances. Uh, very few, but it did see a couple. What do you make of the mana cost here? One white-blue yeah, I think that that's probably the most important deterrent. White and blue just aren't aren't friendly anymore. Much. <laughs> there are still a handful of Esper style or even straight blue white decks that see some success. I mean, Stoneforge Mystic is still played in vintage and makes top eight appearances. Well, I mean, you can you can definitely cast this off a Cavern of Souls, which is good. It is a human. Yeah. Um, so if you were inclined to play a human's deck that was leaning more towards blue than the four-color non-blue versions, this would be an option. I think that's right. This also benefits in a different way, but it still benefits a great deal from Exalted in the way that Cold Eye Selkie does, in yes. that the the clause about not being blocked by creatures of power three or greater, as soon as you make this a 3-3 three, three with a Noble Hierarch, it's going to just walk over anything that could block we'll survive it. survive combat, yeah. all combat. There are very few creatures in Vintage that have two power and four toughness. That just doesn't yeah. happen. I think this guy is actually pretty devastating in Noble Fish Mirror. <laughs> More so, though, than the Selkie? Well, he gains life, so you're never going to lose to that. Mm-hmm. And you can play the creatures that you get off the top of the library. Well, I would argue that you could play the creatures you get off the top of your own library through the Selkie. You're not really disrupting your opponent in a noble fish mirror by just randomly exiling cards. The tempo cards. matters, though. The tempo matters. The life gain is relevant. I think you're right. The life. I would say the life gain is probably the biggest factor. You're comparing the life gain on this card, which is going to vary between zero and occasionally five with a revealed force of will. But it's mo- the median life gain for this is going to be one or two. Yeah. But one or two per turn, that offsets one of their creatures, likely, in many scenarios. I, I think it's a usual, useful exercise, but I'm... I just think he's probably slightly too limited. Yeah, I think the mana cost is pretty narrowing, as you said. You would want this in a Noble Fish-style deck, but you already have better options. And you can't really play more than like two of these guys in your deck anyway. They are legendary also, yeah. So I think it's a human, though. 
It's a human yeah. which is increasingly relevant. Cold Eye Selkie is a merfolk rogue, which means it's not going to benefit from your cavern on humans if you're going that route. Edric does see play these days, and Edric is an elf rogue, also not benefiting from cavern on humans. So the fact that this is human might be the factor that win, has it win out over a Selkie or an Edric when they otherwise would be better cards. Yeah. As you said, the cavern mitigates the, the mana cost restrictions. I'm a little torn. I could definitely see this seeing play. I don't think it's going to be the linchpin in any particular deck. I don't think it's going to be the thing that pushes said deck over the top any more than such a deck already does. Four or five color humans is already a viable thing without this, and Noblefish continues to exist and already has good alternatives to this in Edric and Selkie and other cards. So I think it hovers somewhere between no appearances and half a dozen appearances if it really catches on. I think the upside of the interaction with Noble Hierarch much favors the Selkie over this. Having effectively 3-3 unkillable guy in combat is nice, but the flip side is he doesn't actually have evasion. If your opponent wants to sink chump blockers into this guy along the lines of their Noble Hierarchs or Kosali Pride Mages, etc., they can, and they will thereby deny you effectively drawing extra cards. It's not a long-term tenable situation, but it would be a way to win a race. Whereas, compared to a Cold Eye Selkie, they wouldn't have that option. Edric has more of a gorilla-style effect, where you put him down with two other creatures, and your opponent really can't deny you card draw. What do you think? I'm thinking zero. Okay, I'm with I think it's a possibility, but it just doesn't compare favorably with existing oh, yeah. options. Very, very well, so. Yeah. yeah. And maybe in the future it will be, or in a specific build of humans. <laughs> All right, Steve, next up is Psychic Intrusion, which you already alluded to. It's a sorcery. Three blue-black. Target opponent reveals his or her hand. You choose a non-land card from that player's graveyard or hand and exile it. You may cast that card for as long as it remains exiled, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast that spell. This this card really jumped off the page at me for a number of reasons. One, the phrasing is just, in 20 years of magic, again, I hadn't seen this line, that you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast. And also, the fact that it's both graveyard or hand and exile, and you may choose a card from. That also is unusual. Usually it's like you go through their library and you choose a card in their hand. Or you rather, target opponent reveals, usually it's they reveal their hand, and then you, you know, as is the case with, um, um, what's the card that you look at their hand? Oh, lobotomy. Yeah, like lobotomy type cards. I'm used to like cards like lobotomy. And, um, you know, so this is very different. This is much more flexible, much less narrow. And I, it's much less narrow in subtle ways. So it's not, I think, you know, you, not only can you choose a card from the graveyard or the hand, but you can also choose the time that you want to play this card. And you don't have to be in those colors. So this is much broader in ways that we have not seen before. So it makes it a lot harder to evaluate. All of those things are true, but man, that casting cost. You normally are keeping me honest about evaluating the casting cost of a card up front and three blue-black. Yeah, this is definitely the tip of playability, but I will just note that it is a blue card, so it can pitch to force. It also is the same casting cost as a Tezzeret, which is clearly playable. So I think it is the the tip of playability, but I think it, I think it still is in, in that playable casting cost. And the fact that you, you don't have to play it that turn, the card that turn, uh, diminishes some of the concern over this card's casting cost. When you're looking at a disruptive card, though, five mana is not the point in the game when you want to be disrupting your opponent and 
taking out an otherwise valuable card for their strategy in Vintage. Yeah, and this is something you drain into, and you hope better hope they have an amazing card in their hand or their graveyard. But there's a good chance they have a really amazing card in their graveyard. I mean, if you like Mana Drain Yawgmoth's Will, then you can play the Yawgmoth's Will next turn. You know, that could happen, but I don't think you can rely on it, I guess, is my analysis of that. Yes, that that situation will come up. And now that you mention it, you can plan ahead for taking good cards out of their graveyard if you fill this deck with Thought Seizes and the like. Yeah. So you can you're right. Also, the same thing with Tinker. You could drain into counter something and then play Tinker with this. Yeah, that's fair. That's a very fair point. You can construct a deck with this being part of your end game. Yeah, and that's strategically useful because Tinker and Yawgmoth are so important in the big blue decks. I just think your comparison to Tezzeret really is kind of damning because if I want a card that my opponent has to respect, I'd much rather be at a card that's going to win me the game, not one that stops them from winning the game. Well, but theoretically, this does win you the game next turn, just like Tezzeret. Except that it's you still have to cast that card. And it buys you time in the meantime, so they can't Snapcaster Mage it back or whatever. <laughs> well, the kind of cards that we're talking about are likely those that you wouldn't Snapcaster. Yes, it's possible to Snapcaster Yawgmoth's Will, but that's pretty rare. You know, all these factors are, I think, pointing to the fact that you can construct scenarios with this card that'll make it relevant, possibly disruptive, potentially game-winning. But for every time that those things happen, I think this card's going to be a dead draw. You could also just assemble the time ball combo with it. How often does your opponent end up with half of that combo in their graveyard? That's not a reliable but, but if you're play, If you're playing this card, though, you can plan for that. I don't know about plan for that. It could happen. But what if you draw Time Vault and they draw Time Vault? I just think, it, it is, <laughs> yeah, I just think we need to be careful because this hits car, creature or hand, I mean, card in graveyard or hand, which makes it extremely flexible. Yes, and I acknowledge that. And you're going to get a, a really strong card with it frequently. Yeah. But I would still just point out the. Is wow. it worth the five? If a card's already in their graveyard, you've already effectively denied them that card. You've dealt with it. Yes. Yeah. Getting access to casting it yourself means you're. I mean, you're. Yes, you're only spending half of this card on that effect, also, but you're still overpaying for the ability, you know, the, the luxury of casting in another Jace or something in the same game. Every once in a while, this card could be the difference in a control matchup. But if you're going to resolve a five-mana sorcery in a control matchup and then resolve whatever juicy card has come about as a result of resolving Psychic Intrusion, that sounds like win more to me. That sounds like I would rather have just put a cheaper, awesomer card in my deck, like another Tezzeret or another Jace, which is going to be better in other matchups, mind you. This card needs to apply against yeah. Dredge and Chops and most other decks. In the best case scenario, this becomes Thoughtseize, right? You Thoughtseize their card, and then you play it next turn. That way, you, you, you've actually gotten two cards out of this. You've gotten a discard effect, and you've gotten the card that you... And you get to play the spell next turn. Yeah, yeah that's another good point. If you are... Planning for the scenario where you've disrupted them by removing the best card in their hand with this, which you would, but if you're planning for the scenario where you take the card out of their graveyard, then you haven't actually affected their hand. Yeah. You haven't actually disrupted them. Well, not necessarily the case. Prevented regrowth and you prevented Snapcaster. Maybe. No, no, no. I mean, you've played a regrowth. You, yeah. You've taken not a card that. out of their graveyard for five mana, which yeah. is not a playable not, effect. Yeah. In that case, it would just be like worse than extra pay. Yep. So you're right. You kind of get supreme flexibility with this. Yeah. You're playing possibly four or five different spells. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's like these four elements of supreme flexibility. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I take it you're a zero, and I'm probably a zero as well. Yeah. Good analysis, though, about the possible options. This next card is 
a little more aggressively costed. Spellheart Chimera. Creature Chimera for one blue-red. Flying Trample. Spellheart Chimera's power is equal to the number of instant and sorcery cards in your graveyard. It is a star three. Well, three casting cost creatures are, they're blue, are playable in vintage. We have a number of examples. We have Mendelian Click. We have Trigon Predator. We have, and then a, a slew of creatures that are lesser. I think people can play, is Mayor of Averbrook a three cast? No, he is two. He's two. But uh, Aven Mind Sensor is three. Sure. A number of others. It, what defines all of those cards is almost all of those are just tactically disruptive, whereas this is much more in the Niv Magus elemental vein. This is just a very large creature, but it's evasive in two ways. It has flying and trample. So the question is, how big can get can this get? If you are assuming to be playing a deck similar to Rug Delver today with a, mod- yeah. a moderate mixture of spells and creatures, and maybe this deck would lean more towards spells, as you can imagine. I think it's pretty reasonable to expect that by the time you've cast this, there are two to three spells in your graveyard. And by the time you're attacking with it, I think it's pretty reasonable that there are three to four. I think that's reasonable as well. And that's on curve. If you draw this later in a game, then the sky's the limit. It could be as much as 10 power in late game. Who knows? But but I think on curve, you should expect to be swinging with this as a three and a half power creature. He's the same casting cost as that other creature you were talking about earlier, Kevin, too. Is it static caster? Right. Played for dramatically different reasons, of course. Speaking of same casting costs, I think you, from a mana cost to power efficiency standpoint, you have to compare this guy to Esperzoa and Sea Drake. Two creatures which, boy, I don't have the data in front of me, but they've seen fringe play in Eternal. Sea Drake probably. Yeah, so. I just... I don't think this card is quite good enough in, in vintage in a tempo deck, um, but it might be it might be better in legacy. In legacy, he still gets hit by bolts, but I think he's going to be bigger because you have unrestricted brainstorm and unrestricted ponder and days, um, yeah, and days and all that stuff. But there is still the possibility of using him as an oath creature too. Uh, very interesting. I hadn't considered that when I first looked at this. In order for that to be viable, though. Are you saying you're shooting for having 20 instants slash sorceries in the graveyard when you oath this up? Absolutely. Hmm. Well, it's certainly feasible to construct your deck that way. Uh, the ratios don't work out in your favor, I don't think, though. Yes, your deck would have more than 20 spells in it, but assuming you have to put two of these in your deck, then the law of averages would suggest that you would need to have 40 spells in your deck. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I actually, I think he, he he's probably going to be like a 15 power on average when he comes up. So you're talking about a two turn clock basically after you've opened well, it up. But if you memory, if you memory's journey, I think you can get there though, as long as you have a draw trigger post oath. Ah, uh, yes, good point. So you could adjust the basic tactics of the oath deck to make it more reliably lethal to turn it attacks. Yeah. So you're picturing more of a golden gun style still hard to set up because even if you can have like a deck that has like 30 instants or you know some some number like that and you oath him up and he's got like reliably 10 power the problem is going to be you know in half the cases more than half the cases the time walk is not going to be in the graveyard unless you just play one creature in your oath deck just one of these (laughs) well with memory's journey it's increasingly feasible yeah but i mean the memory's journey then you can in your upkeep journey either the time walk or the demonic tutor into your hand to find the time walk maybe if you make use of an awful lot of scry in that deck (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's funny no i i'm with you I, i like your assessment i think this is just not efficient enough it doesn't have a dominant enough board presence to be playable just as a beater in vintage 
In Legacy, it seems a little slightly more feasible. More creatures are played just for their power and toughness in Legacy than in Vintage. But even then, it's still right on the cusp. So I think in Vintage, this is this has no chance. Some people might look at it and test it, but it's just not going to be impressive enough. Even if you live the dream and play this on turn three and it has six power by the time you attack, that's still behind just having played your Delver on turn one. You could play Dragon's Breath so you could attack immediately. <laughs> in Golden. That's why I was referring to when I said Golden Gun. Yeah. Yes, you could lay that in Oath and expect to attack <laughs> with 15 to 20 power. but One shot and you're dead. <laughs> I still think that Blightsteel Colossus and Emrakul are better at that job. Yeah, and then there's all sorts of like secondary damage, like all the dredge hate, you know, Tormod's Crypta stuff just neuters him. Very good point. He would suffer from all that incidental splash damage as well. Your opponent's they land the void good game. Yeah, your opponent's main deck Nile zero off. forever. <laughs> yeah, rest in peace. <laughs> Don't want to get matched up against rest in peace of this guy. Yeah, all right. I'm I'm going with zero. I'm gonna go there as well. Oh, man. We have got a meaty card to finish up with, Steve. That being Steam Augury. And I imagine that everyone that's listening to us already knows this one well, but here it is. Instant, two, blue, red. Reveal the top five cards of your library and separate them into two piles. An opponent chooses one of those piles. Put that pile into your hand, the other into your graveyard. Anyone who's been playing this game for more than a couple of minutes knows that this is Factor Fiction Redux reversing the roles of who builds the piles and who chooses. My friend Kirsten and I had a long discussion about the mechanics and the skill in these two spells. He concluded that the reason Factor Fiction feels better to cast it is due to the back and forth of its resolution. You make a choice, then I make a choice, then you make a choice, that kind of thing. And I think I think that's tied to its power. Okay, explain. The, since the player acting second gets the benefit of evaluating the situation, the piles after they've been made, that player acting second always inherently has more information because one player has already made their choices known, or their input, I mean, known. So in addition to some other benefits of factor fiction in that you can guarantee a specific card and you can always guarantee to draw three or more cards if you want, the simple fact is is that whoever acts second in either of these spells has more information to work with. So in the case of Factor Fiction, you make the pot you you they make the piles, then you choose. Yeah. Whereas here you make, uh, you make the piles and they choose. And I think that whoever acts second in that situation, whoever is choosing which pile goes where, is at an advantage. There's ob- not, the person, not the person who makes the piles. It matters who chooses. I, I just think whoever's making the second choice is the one I, who's advantage. I would like to see. I would like to talk about some specific examples here and compare both of them to see which is better. Absolutely. I've got a couple. Do you have a couple? I do have one. You can go first. Okay. All right. Suppose you factor fiction and you flip over mystical tutor, ponder, land, say fetch land, mox, off color mox, and dark confidant. How would you split that pile if it was factor fiction, Kevin? So I am your opponent, and you have facted, and you've revealed those five cards. Yeah, let's say I go, like, turn one, Lotus, land, fact, or I go Mox, Sapphire, Mana Crypt, land, and I fact, and I reveal Mystical Tutor, Ponder, land, Mox, bomb. What are you giving me? What are you splitting? Early in the game, and I think that Ponder, Mystical Tutor, and Bob are the three business spells, an off-color Mox and a land. Well, I'm going to value Bob as probably the best card in that fact. So I immediately want to separate him from the other business spells, in my opinion. So you're going to be Bob, Land, Mock, which is Mystical Tutor, Ponder? I don't know if I would give you both mana sources. Ponder and Mystical Tutor are both pretty potent spells, though. 
ignoring for the the fact that many things matter based on my hand and the matchup, I would say it's at least Bob and one of the mana sources, the two spells and one of the other mana sources. That's probably how I'd split it. I'd probably take that three. That three. Yeah, yeah that's reasonable. So if this was Steam Augury, then the person is forced to split it. It seems like it would have a very similar effect because I would probably split it. Let's say it's turn two. And I just had land, land, mana crypt, and I played back. Yeah. I would probably split it. See, I think this is interesting because you might be able to split it in such a way that you can try to entice your opponent to give you the wrong pile. <laughs> Absolutely, you can. There is definitely an element of skill and bluffing to the creation of piles. I might actually make it. If it's turn one, I actually. If it's turn one, Bob is slightly higher value. If it's turn two, Bob is slightly lower value. I think that's fascinating. I think I may. <laughs> Um, hmm. well, my initial thought is Mystical Tutor Ponder in one pile, Land Mox Bob in the other. But I probably want to split the mana. I probably need mana split. So maybe, maybe I do what you just suggested. I put Mox Bob in one hand, Land Ponder Mystical in the other. Which pile would you give me? Assume it's turn one. I just, I just did the Lotus. I believe all other things being equal, I'm going to give you the smaller pile. But it has a lot to do with whether or not I have answers to Bob in my hand. And that's why, wow. yeah. and that's why I say I think that example typifies how the person going second yeah. is advantaged because they make the final choice. With well, the, what this exercise, what this exercise has really revealed to me is that with factor fiction, you you can always get at least three cards. Always. <laughs> well, that's a good. And you can always get one of the cards in the pile. So fact has those advantages in addition to the other tactical advantages I mentioned. Yeah. Whereas this card, you're 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 not guaranteed to always get three at least three cards. With Steam Augury, it really, really emphasizes the bluffing aspect of the pile creation. Because as the caster of the spell, you have extra information when building the piles that the pile builder doesn't with fact. I mean you know your hand. So that's one advantage of the Steam Augury. And the bluffing aspect, I think, of this card, as it's implemented, which will almost certainly be in standard, will be huge. It'll just be incredible. Imagine that same scenario, Steve, where you've played a turn one fact, and Bob is in there and Mystical Tutor's in there. But imagine you have two Bobs in your hand. Yes. So you split your Steam Augury, Bob, and the other four cards. Yeah. Now, what am I to do with that information? Yeah. But imagine if you f- make another 4-1 split. Imagine if you split it. Yeah. I made a 4-1 split yesterday, uh, this past weekend when someone played fact on me. Sure. I, it happens all the time. Yeah. But, it, it, I mean, it happens in late games all the time when it's pretty clear to both players what kind of card is needed in a situation. Right. Right. On turn one, though, man, or turn one or two of of, of a developing game, yeah, that kind of thing. There's the the steam augury will be rife for, as you said, goading your opponent into giving you the wrong pile. Yeah, especially, and I would say anyone who's expecting to cast steam augury a fair bit, I would say practice is key. Because the more confident you can be in the split, you will also get more misplays by your opponent. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I also think that your point is true, which is that the person who chooses is the one who has the powerful. The second, the second, the advantage goes to the, the second choice. Yes. And the second, and, and and that effect is the point that I, the observation I just rendered, which is that that the person who, with factor fiction, you can always at least get three cards, mm-hmm. whereas you can't always get that here. I think all of those things tell us that from a vintage concept uh, perspective, factor fiction is the superior card. Yes. I think it's possible as you and I are getting at here, to construct scenarios where Steam Augury might lead to a better result. 
through a combination of game state and imperfect information and your skill with crafting piles and also bluffing. So give me some examples that you've come up with. Well, one example that I love is anything involving time vault or key. But let's just look at time vault. Let's say again, it's it's the maybe it's the mid game. The time in the game doesn't maybe matter so much, but this this trick probably gets better later in the game. Okay. But I steam augury and the cards are time vault, force of will, mental misstep, time walk, polluted delta. Okay, split those for me. So I I I open up those four cards and I immediately slam down time vault versus the other four. Now, as my opponent, oh dang, invented in the mid game, which of those two piles did yeah. me? Yeah, exactly. If I give you time vault, it's like wow. If he's got key, <laughs> right? I just handed him the game. But if I don't yeah. have key in my hand of of a couple of cards, two to two to four cards maybe, if I don't have key in there, but I still make authoritatively make that split right off the bat. Yeah, yeah it depends. Your behavior really matters there. Yeah, you're going to catch a lot of players fearing that time vault more than they should. And and, yeah. and you can put a number of cards in that same scenario. You can put Tinker in there. You can put a Demonic Tutor in there. It may actually be this. You can use Steam Augury in that way to get more cards than Factor Fiction would have otherwise get, gotten you. That's another key point there, is that I think that while Factor Fiction is deterministic with regard to one card or any three cards, you can guarantee yes. one of those outcomes. I think that Steam Augury properly implemented by its caster may lead to more four card draws hmm. and it might just be a feature of certain certain constellations of cards you know t- time vault or demonic tutor or ancestral recall they might be more likely to have that effect and maybe you can't do that as much in standard in standard there's no two card kills like it's amazing evil. that the card is so similar and yet so different yeah i know i really love that aspect of it and so i think the bottom line though for our evaluation is you could construct scenarios where Steam Augury might give you four cards versus Factor Fiction's three, depending on how the game state goes and how you implement it. But in the long run, given Vintage's vintage nature and the relative value of ch- cards changing moment to moment in Vintage, Factor Fiction is just the superior card. Not to mention the casting cost. Yes. Yeah. It's really a fun exercise, and it's really fun to dig yeah. into, to just look at scenarios and how you would handle them differently with fact versus... Steam Augury really does open the door to a lot of behavioral stuff. Oh, yeah. And psychological stuff that I had not not really considered before. Factor Fiction, I mean, those are relevant, but this is a very different piece. I, and I told Kirsten this when he and I discussed it. My position is that... From a skill standpoint, if you measure the cards in terms of their effect on the game state, taking all players into consideration, I think the cards are roughly equivalent in terms of game skill. Mm-hmm. But the two cards measure and emphasize different skills more. Skills, yep. Yeah. That's fascinating. Wow. Well, Steve, uh, we need to wrap it up, though. We need to say, are we predicting zero? Because I'm predicting zero. Factor Fiction is played. I don't expect yeah. Augury to. Yeah, I'm going to predict, but I, I really do appreciate the point that you made, which is that there, there are definitely situations where this is better than Factor Fiction or could be better than Factor Fiction. I do have a, a temp, this may be marginal, but I do have a templating concern or question, and I'm not sure how this would be resolved, but I don't know if you noticed this, but it says that an opponent chooses one of those piles. Put that pile into your hand. I, I, I tend to think that opponents will often choose the pile they want to go to your graveyard and so it's going to lead to a lot of rules lawyering you know like like people t- tend to do with flusterstorm <laughs> say what what copy what cards are you where are the copies targeting you know i'm just concerned that people are going to be frustrated about that maybe they should have said um, an opponent chooses one of those piles put that card into your graveyard and the other into your hand hmm. 
I don't, I agree that there is definitely cause for concern there and certain situations may lead to player confusion. I don't think you can resolve that issue though by exchanging hand versus graveyard in the results instruction. Either way, you're going to have someone think they're choosing the other. Well, 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 what you, what you would do is if you wanted to be a jerk is you would just say, what pile do you choose? <laughs> and they and say, you know, and you say, and they choose a pile and they try and put in your graveyard. And I say, and you, and you would just say, oh, so you're choosing this pile. Is that correct? <laughs> and they say, yes. And then you call the judge over and you say they chose this pile, you know? I know exactly what you mean. And you're right. Some some rules lawyers might take that approach and try and talk their opponent into making the wrong choice. Yeah. I mean that that might actually be an advantage to steam augury, but but you might also get punched. I see your point, yeah. But you know, for every time that happens, it's gonna go the way it should a thousand times. So I, that is a valid concern. I would. I imagine that players. That's another thing that can be aided by practice with the card and being a little careful when you're learning to play with it. And you're right. That problem doesn't exist with factor fiction. Right. And players just pick up the cards they want with factor fiction, and the choice is kind of implicit. With steam augury, you're ordering your opponent to put cards in a zone, and there's definitely room for communication confusion. I don't expect that that will mar the card's playability in whatever whatever format it's played in, though. Yeah. Um, Gifts Ungiven also has a choice, but the opponent in that one chooses the card that go, the cards that go to the graveyard. And so players who are primed with Gifts Ungiven are more likely to make a mistake with Seamoggery. Interesting. Yeah, I would encourage anyone who's playing with or against this card to maybe, rather than saying, I choose this pile, indicate which zone you're choosing to go to. It's not exactly what the card tells you to do. It's not. I would not do that, but I'm not a rules expert. I would I would be very careful about that because I would I would just choose the pile that goes to your the opponent's hand. <laughs> I'd be very careful. Well, well, yeah, but that advice amounts to don't make mistakes. <laughs> the, the player in question that you are citing concern with is the player who thinks they're choosing the graveyard pile. Yeah. And in which case, rather than just make a statement and be wrong about it, I would suggest many players to just get in the habit of saying hand and graveyard. Yeah. It's like like you said, it's it's not literally what the card says to do, but I don't think any judge would have a problem with stipulating this goes to this zone, this goes to this zone. It's a much clearer and more long-winded way of getting I, to the right result. Multiple cases in which people have messed up because of Flusher Storm when there's a very similar issue, you know? Yeah, that's a good point. It It's not out of the realm of possibility for people to be confused on simple choices like that due to speed or focusing on other aspects of the game state or what have you. I think it's a cautionary tale, a good one. Well, Steve, we're at the end of our Theros set review. We have covered more cards in this set than in any other set since we've been doing this show. And we've also predicted fewer appearances of any cards from any set since we've been doing this show. What do you make of that? (laughs) Well, I think that goes to to the, um, ironically... The overall power level of the set is higher than average, but it, but, but the band of power, the, the variance of power is narrower. And so the power just sits below playability or the threshold of playability. And so there are a bunch of cards there, but they don't quite make it over that threshold. So this set has, I think, a lower variance. I mean, it's got three Savannah Lion, Jackal Pup, Carnophage, 
you know, variants, a very high level power level, but none of those cards really make it into vintage playability, or if they do, they're very marginal. So there's a lot of cards that, that are worth talking about because they, they're fringe playables, but very few that, that are really strong. And where you have sets that have much higher variance in power level, you have more than a few cards that pop up into that upper echelon of playability and transcend that threshold for vintage playability, ironically enough. So I think my conclusion is this set has a very high power level, um, but it has a less variance or a lower genie coefficient, so to speak, um, of, of uh, power. That's really interesting, and I generally agree. I find myself wondering if that portends any kind of trend in terms of R&D in general. Is, the, yeah. is this a new world order of sorts, or is this just an anomaly that is endemic to this set or this block? Yeah. The only time will tell. Yeah, the other thing is the the mechanics are not very well suited to vintage, aside from spry. Again, they tend to be overly oriented towards permanents and creatures. And until that isn't the case, those kinds of mechanics are just not going to be very, very vintage useful. Absolutely. We received a lot of feedback on our vintage scenarios. Um, on the Mana Drain, Maximum Sea Dog said, I noticed that almost all of your scenarios deal with turn one and turn two of the game, kind of like only discussing the openings in chess. I imagine this is because that is the point where you have the most decisions to make, as disruption and more information will narrow the realistic options as the game goes on. Any thought to late-game scenarios? Well, Kevin, we discussed the possibility of late-game scenarios, and there are a number of them. Um, there are, you know, one person actually said, this game, this deck doesn't really have late-game scenarios, it just keeps playing back, breaking cards until the game ends or it runs out of cards. If it goes past turn three, the win percentage for Burning Tendrils is very low. That's not actually true. You know, for example, in the workshop matchup, the, ga- the games can actually go very long because you're trying to build towards bouncing their board or, um, you know, triggering Oath and then finding your way out with after you've drawn a bunch of cards, then bouncing their board. But uh, some really good late-game scenarios are tend to be those where you're playing against Dredge and you've time-twistered, or you play a draw seven in the mid or late game. Or, and I think some of the best late-game scenarios that we could have done a lot on, are where you're playing against Burning Tendrils against a control deck, and both players have spent their hands, and they're both in top deck mode. And you draw a card, and what do you do? Like, you draw Demonic Tutor, or you draw... Mystic, or you draw Vampiric Tutor, or you draw Burning Wish. So there are actually lots of late game scenarios we could have created. Um, we just didn't have them readily available at the point, but we could do those in the future. Our question for this week should come as no surprise. What Theros card do you think will see the most play in Vintage? Thank you for listening to episode 29 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.